All right, we're going to start in just a sec. If uh, people still in the lobby could come on in, uh, we'll we'll be ready to get rolling. It's a good sign in a conference that you can't get people out of their own conversations back focused on the main podium. We've certainly generated some good discussions here. All right, we'll go ahead and, uh, are you guys ready on that? Great. All right, we'll go ahead and get started then. Um, welcome back from lunch. Uh, to the last panel of the day is on cult media. And we struggled an awful lot with the name of this panel. Uh, it, not necessarily every panelist feels equally comfortable with this as a category to represent what it is they do. Uh, we tried to talk about niche media. But part of the thing that's interesting about cult media at the present time is precisely the degree to which genres and forms of entertainment and modes of engagement that once were seen to be marginal or niche are moving aptly to the mainstream of the entertainment center. It's uh, complex today. So that a show like Lost or a show like Her Heroes might once have been on the fringe of the dial or maybe on the sci-fi channel or something else now can be among the most successful new shows on American television, and we may be seeing that with some of those breakout successes of this season as well. The, the, the shows that are succeeding are those that might have once been thought to appeal to geeks, uh, nerds, and fan, fanboys and girls, but uh, are instead appealing to a large chunk of the population. It's precisely that tension we wanted to talk about in this session, uh, and what happens to the original niche audiences for some of this content, what's the value of hardcore followers, how do these things appeal across multiple platforms and so forth. You know, at the same time, we did a session last year on transmedia storytelling, and we see that as an absolutely central theme to this session. Uh, we didn't want to call it exactly the same thing we called it last year, but I think it's been the cult media properties that have been the most experimental in extending the, the narrative across media channels, and we see that as a reason to bring that theme into this discussion. So that said, I'm going to ask each of the panelists uh, to introduce themselves, to describe a little bit of what work they've done in whether we want to call it niche entertainment, engagement entertainment, cult media, whatever word we want to use to talk about it, and give us a broader sense of what you think are, are changing that, that's the space of today. So why don't we start uh, with Jesse on that and then work, work our way down. Uh, my name is Jesse Alexander, and I'm a writer-producer on a show called Heroes. Um, and before that, I worked on uh, a couple other TV shows, uh, Alias, uh, which was a serialized drama about a young woman who was a spy, and, and then um, Lost as well, who was involved in the pilot in season one of Lost. Um, before that, I made a living as a writing feature screenplays in Hollywood. Um, you know, my, my niche was, was uh, 
was writing genre properties, you know, uh, science fiction action type movies, you know, I would write a Flash Gordon script for Sony, a new Jason the Argonauts for DreamWorks, and I adapted some video games, and that was really my my niche, and, and you know, I kind of, that was great for me because I grew up loving that type of content, loving genre content, loving Star Wars, loving my Atari 2600 and my Apple II, and, and, uh, and all that type of stuff type of content, and the first, one of the first paying jobs I had was writing a video game uh, that had Bruce Willis in it called Apocalypse for the PlayStation, and it, it was, you know, the vision of what that game could be was way ahead of its time, but, uh, um, you know, I was lucky enough to be involved in the game space in, in, a, in a very cool and exciting way. Um, on, on Heroes, I, you know, I, I, I function uh, as a writer-producer, which means I, uh, because of you know where, where I come from, I'm kind of in charge of managing the, the writer's room and, and helping shape the content uh, of, of the scripts for the show. Um, uh, and we all work collaboratively to that end together, which you know can be challenging, as you can imagine, getting writers to collaborate um, uh, can be challenging, but it can also be quite fun. And um, you know, it, it, it's very similar to kind of a D and D game. I don't know if, if that, you know, works for anybody is that, you know, what, what Tim Kring did with that show is he gave us a, with, with Heroes is he gave us a pilot and then, you know, that, that had an endpoint built into it and then he brought in a, you know, team of outside creatives and it was all about us trying to figure out how we would get to that endpoint and, and it was just amazing creative things last year. Um, I'm also involved in the, you know, production side of the show dealing with the, you know, just the nonsense of casting and budget and dealing with the network and, and you know, some advertiser involvement and, and very involved in the transmedia content uh, as well. What is your budget? <laughs> I can I hear four million an episode. What is it? Um, I, I, uh, <laughs> I can't say. And you could, all, you could think that it could be less than that or it could be more than that. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's a, you know, it's a, it's significant. In, in a way that is uh, is is crazy, and you know it, it's that expensive for many for many reasons. But um, uh, that's that's kind of who I am. Is that is that? That's great. Great. Um, I'm Danny Bilson. I started in B movies in the '80s. Then I went to I did the Rocketeer with Disney. I've done about 160 hours of TV. The shows I did were The Sentinel, The Flash. Viper and the Human Target. They're all pretty comic booky. I've written, um, last year I wrote the Flash comic book and a graphic novel called Red Menace that came out about two weeks ago for DC and Wildstorm. And it's holding it up. It's something, that's actually something I really like, Red Menace. Um, I teach at USC. I teach interactive, I teach um, game writing, essentially. I was at Electronic Arts for five years as the VP of uh, Intellectual Property Development. I left. Um, to try to actually to try to get some stuff going in transmedia properties, meaning movie, comic book, games, and stuff like that, had minimal to zero success. I thought I was going to do much better. I'm going back to the game business right now. I'm going to be a chief creative officer at THQ. Um, I still I just wrote a movie for the Disney Channel that I'm supposed to direct. That I'll find out Monday if we're going. So I, I do a lot of things, and I also work in counterterrorism for the government. <laughs> a lot. I do a lot. I've done a lot of that. Uh, and I, I love transmedia. I met Henry. At, and you think uh, he's joking? No, I'm not. I met I met Henry um, at Electronic Arts, and I've been obsessed with transmedia 
forever. I'll give you an example that's really important to me. People get off the small world ride at Disneyland, and I hear these parents bitching about the fact that they sell the small world toys in this little thing right next to it, right? I think that's the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> Not because it's exploiting the kids or the parents, because the kids get an extra piece and they get to extend their experience. And I love good merchandise, I collect toys, I mean, I love all that stuff because I like to get more pieces of the big story. And I'll stop there. All right, hey, I'm Jeff Gomez. Um, my, uh, uh, my story is a little bit similar, but, um, but different in, perhaps in that um, uh, I was a kid who uh, grew up in the late 60s and early 70s in the projects of the Lower East Side of Manhattan, um, uh, where uh, essentially um, I got kind of uh, kicked around a lot. I, I was born with a, a little facial paralysis uh, from a force of delivery, so uh, I was sort of the outsider in this uh, largely uh, black and Hispanic neighborhood that, uh, of tough guys. And, um, uh, I had to learn how to deal with this, and, and largely that was to kind of uh, uh, crawl inside myself and start exploring the world of imagination. Um, uh, I needed somebody big and tough to protect me, and he turned out to be Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, I loved Godzilla, and, I, I, um, uh, and yet, at that time, think about it, essentially what you had were occasional visits on the 430 movie. Um, and uh, huge gaps in between, and, and so I, I needed to create my own Godzilla content um, <laughs> stories and, and artwork and things like that. And when, uh, when the TV guide would come and there was the, once a year maybe there'd be a little picture of them and I'd cut it out and save it and so forth. Imagine that compared to the access we have uh, today. Um, uh, as I uh, got older, I, I began to explore uh, 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 mythology and fantasy worlds and, uh, and uh, Tolkien uh, particularly, and I was just um, floored by the realism of that world, and I wanted to be there so badly as opposed to where I was. And um, uh, it, um, it, it made me want to emulate it, and I, I found a system of rules that allowed me to do just that, and you mentioned it before. Um, so I, I could keep essentially tying the towel around my neck and flying around in my underwear by playing Dungeons and Dragons. And, um, and yet, uh, who, who was I gonna play with? A, a bunch of uh, street toughs. <laughs> um, so I had to think about how to uh, make these fantasy worlds accessible to, to bums, <laughs> to, to, you know, to bullies, <laughs> you know, and convince them to, to sit around and listen to my crazy stories. Um, so I began to get a, a sense of what the interactive experience was like and, um, and how to, um, to, to reach out and maybe uh, drag someone who wouldn't ordinarily have anything to do with dragons and knights and dungeons and, and, um, and make them en enjoy it because what I had to do was kind of psychoanalyze them, get, get into their heads and give them a little bit of what they want, help them to realize their, their fantasies. I, uh, I moved on uh, uh, after college to um, become a creative writing teacher and I applied some of these uh, methods and um, uh, that led me to uh, 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 create that curriculum in the form of a magazine that was published on a Mac Plus. <laughs> Um, with 512K, um, and uh, it was a, a desktop published magazine. 
uh, that I, I believed in so fervently that I got up the courage to call Marvel Comics and Lucasfilm and, and said, I, I want to put your, your, a picture of your product on my cover. And they said, okay, and just sent it. And it was amazing to me uh, because that allowed the magazine to, uh, to get national distribution. And, um, and it got all over the place and uh, it made a name for me in the adventure game industry. Uh, I met Gary Gygax, and he called me a grandmaster. <laughs> and, um, uh, and in that magazine, I began to proselytize about the one day in the future, um, a storyline was going to start um, maybe on television or, or in a comic book, and then it was going to jump to this thing called bulletin boards. And we were going to play out a part of that story, all of us. And then the result of that story was going to jump back into a novel or, or uh, you know, uh, one of these Zork kind of video games. <laughs> and, um, and lo and behold, you know, um, a, a few years later, I started writing uh, modules for like Palladium Books and uh, Wizards of the Coast. And um, uh, I joined a, a company called uh, Valiant, Valiant Comics. And, um, and I worked in the Valiant superhero universe. Um, and... Um, uh, that, that company was purchased by Acclaim Entertainment, the guys who made Mortal Kombat. And um, no one at Valiant Comics knew anything about games except kind of me, and, and um, I was just a, an assistant editor at the time. I said, um, they, they came to me and said, well, what character should we pick? Uh, this was in the early 90s, uh, to be the first uh, Acclaim video game. And, uh, and I, I was partial to dinosaurs, so I said, Turok. Um, and, uh, and they said, well, what would the story be? And I invented uh, a story. Um, and and I, I asked Acclaim to send me um, uh, design documents, concept documents, things like that. I studied the format and, and equaled it, and, um, and I became the producer and storyteller behind the Turok Dinosaur Hunter uh, franchise. Uh, right after that, uh, I brought uh, Magic the Gathering to the attention of Acclaim. We were competing against Marvel and DC, and um, um, I, I told the guys at, at Wizards of the Coast, who were friends of mine from the Gateways days, my magazine, I said, um, come with us and I'll help you build your universe. And, uh, and they said, okay, that's better than, than just a comic book. It's, it's a world that we can use to make other things, novels and things like that. And, um, and they said, okay, but we need it right now. So what did I do? I dug up a continent out of my D&D &D universe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure. Brought it over and <coughs> plugged their characters in. It works. <laughs> it works, oh, doesn't yeah. it? Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> and, and made a lot of money. I, I, I could move out of the projects. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, and those sold millions of comics, the Magic the Gathering comic books and video games, which I produced with uh, Acclaim and Microprose. And, uh, and then I, I formed my own company, Starlight Runner Entertainment. And that's what we do we essentially take uh, intellectual properties and, uh, and develop the universe, the fictional world, colossally. Um, it's a kind of fractal methodology that, that zeroes in on the message of, of, the, uh, of the, the property and, and then blows it out gigantically. And then because we know collectively uh, how to develop for different media platforms, we then help the company do so. So we've done Hot Wheels for Mattel. Uh, we've done Pirates of the Caribbean for um, the Walt Disney Company. We did a little Disney Fairies 
Um, uh, we, um, we're working with Coca-Cola on a brand new uh, IP. And, um, and we are uh, uh, working with 20th Century Fox on James Cameron's new movie, which is mind-blowing. Right, so that's my story. All right. Um, my name is Gordon Titchell. I work at Walden Media. Uh, my background is not nearly as interesting for this group <laughs> as the three gentlemen to my right. Uh, I've been in the entertainment and media business for about 15 years. And for the first 14 of those, I was on the finance side. So I was the guy analyzing the projects that these guys wanted to do, saying the audience isn't big enough. There's no way we should make them. <laughs> then no. when we would make them anyways, I would then figure out ways to try to reduce the cost, bring in money, and hopefully they worked. A lot of times they did. For the last year, I had a shift in my career, still at Walden Media. I now work in an office in Boston and oversee our outreach division. And what we do with our most of the movies Walden Media makes are family entertainment and their adaptations of well-known children's literature. And we create programs for teachers, librarians, community groups, faith groups, uh, showing them how they can use our movies as a teaching tool, as an aid, as well as just trying to find groups and niche audiences that might have an affinity for the movie that we're making and create programs to bring them in so that before the movie is released, they feel that they have a, an ownership or a kinship to the project. Okay, so we've started down this path a little bit. We've heard how you've become interested in, in, in some of these genres and the work that you're currently doing. As I began by saying that there's been the shift of a lot of these genres from the fringes of the entertainment industry to the mainstream. And I'm wondering, first of all, what, what factors you think accounts for that shift? Well, did you ever read <coughs> Easy Rider and Raging Bulls? That, yeah, that sure, book, anybody? Sure. I mean, that really sort of told the story of how this happened. And I, Jaws, it was really Jaws was, it came from a literature, but it was a popular novel. It's basically a monster movie, right? It's just, it's very well done. And that was this giant blockbuster. That created the blockbuster syndrome in the 70s. Star Wars later, but Close Encounters. All that stuff, just like Henry's saying, would have been, those were all, the B movies became the A movies. And I propose right now that what were the A movies are now the B movies. So you can't make a drama unless you go to Searchlight or Warner Classics or one of those. You can only make big genre stuff, kind of. Absolutely, that, that you know, established the economic viability of, of, the, of the blockbuster entertainment. And, and you know, there's so many factors that, that apply to this. You know, certainly, um, you know, there have always been fans who have been devotees of, of genre entertainment, but they haven't had uh, an ability to connect with each other and an ability to build a, a real and economically powerful community until you know, something like the net. So that, I think, has really helped things launch you know, into the stratosphere with that type of thing. And another element is just that the people who create the content, you know, are, are, are getting older. They're of a, of a certain generation. You know, people who love genre entertainment and are more familiar with it are now the ones who, who are creating it. And I think all the successful properties that we've seen in the, in the certainly the genre television space have been developed by people who love that, that material. And as, you know, as, media, as, you know, genres and people mature, you know, the, the people who, you know, love something as kids and then went into that business are now creating it. I, you know, I can't, I can't even imagine what the hell we're gonna, things are going to look like when the Harry Potter generation gets to the point where they're controlling media. You know, it's going to be a completely different face of genre entertainment where they take the things that they loved about Harry Potter and iterate on them in new and creative ways. Um, and, and I think that's been, uh, 
very privately. <laughs> because Warner Brothers chases everybody. Yeah. 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 I worked on Potter for three years, so yeah. yeah. It's horrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to, just to add to that a little bit, I, I think it also helps that, um, uh, that the, the genre or, or niche material, that, that there's magnificent talent being applied to that now. It yeah, used to be that the, the hacks hacked out the horror and the fantasy and, and the science fiction, but now superb uh, talent is being applied to it. They're, they're maturing and they're, they're turning out really good stories. But all, I think that's a really important point. The other one is that we're applying all those skills of drama are getting applied to these things that weren't applied to them in the 50s. And we all liked them because the monster was cool or the robot <laughs> was cool or the idea was cool. But if you take his show, for instance, um, the traditional television stuff is there in his show. The, the family stuff, the character stuff, the human drama. What, and then you look at Lost, it's much heavier in that one, and the sci-fi is a lot smaller. But you're giving everybody the stuff that the masses can connect to. They can connect to all those, all those humanities, and then we're bringing new, we, not me, we're bringing new stories into this, he is, that are taking <laughs> what we were reading in the 80s in comics, That's right. and now they're putting it on TV brilliantly, and, but, but they're still, like, I think my mother-in-law will really like Heroes. I'm going to give her the DVDs because they really work the people really well. And that's, that is a huge part of it. And that's, you know, something that, you know, just, you know, because J.J. Abrams, who created Lost, and Tim Kring, who created Heroes, because they had worked in the TV space, they really understood it and understood a broadcast market. That, that it really, you know, network television is a broad cast medium. You need to be able to touch all different types of people, and very often you can do that with an ensemble cast. And that helps mitigate how some audiences might be turned off by a genre property. So certainly on Lost and on Heroes, we tried to populate those shows with characters that anybody in the audience could identify with. You would, you know, some people might like the cheerleader, some people might like the the cop, you know, some people might like the brother brother story. There's something in in that show for everyone. So everyone who's sitting on a couch, you know, as a family can watch hopefully what can watch heroes and find things that they like. And if there's something that they don't like, they might just get they might just ride through it to get to the point that they do like. And I think that it, it's bringing that that genre sensibility, that love of genre, and then applying, you know, experience making broadcast television has really allowed some of these shows to, to prosper and blow up. But it's also, I would say it coincides with the, the growth of the DVR in TiVo, where you can get much more deep into your programs that if you miss an episode, if, there, if you didn't have your TiVo set to record it, you would eventually lose interest because the storylines can get well, really Well, and all these you can download. Even yeah, and now I mean, there's so many different ways that you can go back, you can watch them the next season on DVD. I fly back and forth between LA and Boston about once a week. I get most of my shows through iTunes. Very disappointed that NBC and iTunes had a falling out. Disaster. But I watch them all on, on my laptop on the plane yeah. and can keep up. And that's I think that's fantastic. It, it, you know, it and it's amazing because we, you know, have, have seen, certainly with Lost season one, it was massive broadcast. And then it experienced what those shows often do is, you know, creative fluctuations. You know, some of the audience, you know, went away from broadcast but then started experiencing the show on DVD and in other ways. That was tremendously important, especially with the serialized narrative. You know, I think that's the best way to watch these shows it is when you can watch them at your own pace. You can watch them all in a row and they're not split up by commercials. Uh, another thing, too, is thematically, the stuff that is very often in genre entertainment, I, is, I don't know if genre is the right word, but I'm just going to keep using it. Mm -hmm. 
the themes of kind of hope and community and outsiders coming together and finding a way to work with each other, those are very kind of hopeful, positive themes. And they're also very appropriate, I think, for our, for our times, potentially. And uh, I, I think that, that that certainly has a lot to do with it, why people are, are, are finding something in the genre entertainment that's hopeful and speaks to them. Do you think, for everybody, do you think it works with non-serialized content? Totally. Like, uh, well, what's the like? like I, I actually think that the serialized is really more powerful. That's why I'm bringing this up. It could up. be. It's kind of a disaster. It's so hard. It's so hard. <laughs> well, I haven't uh, had the privilege of doing serialized. All my shows were they had to be one-offs, and I tried to. I want to do one, and then I was told don't do it because the network. This was last year. The, the networks were saturated, and now they're squawking because his show's numbers are down, and they, they all freak out because they're just jumping on these numbers. Well, we have very big DVR numbers, and the, the fans <laughs> are still there online, and the, so that maybe that number is down. But really important point. When I asked them about the budget of his show, what all I've been thinking about is if they didn't have all these extra revenues on that show, DVDs mm -hmm. and any ancillary and whatever transmedia you guys can create. Their revenue would be in trouble because the, their num they're running numbers so high, and it's not coming from the advertisers on NBC. And that was a strategy that was born out of, you know, obviously it's pretty, it's a very obvious strategy. But from my personal experience, it was born out of Alias, this other show that I worked on, that was a serialized narrative that had a very specific fan audience, and we just tried to get the network and studio pregnant with as much possible Alias stuff as we could, so that if those if those numbers went down. We could have critical success. We could have audience love. We could sell lots of DVDs. And it was all about anything to keep us on, on the air. And that you know, was something that we certainly applied to, uh, applied to Heroes. Because it, it's true, you need to find those other revenue streams, especially with something like Heroes that is you know, very expensive. And you see, see the budget of that show on, the, on screen every week. And, and you need to find other revenue streams uh, to, to support that. And, Personally, you know, this is a whole other conversation. Those revenue streams need to be organic and authentic and, and can't talk down to the audience and are things to be taken advantage of in a positive way as a storyteller. So, what, so building off that, you, you're describing the importance of audience engagement of passionate consumers. Is there a tension between the expectations of what you need to do to build up a hardcore fan base behind some of the properties you're talking about and what's needed for general market success? Uh, <laughs> sure. The, you know, I, th I think, you know, what, what I feel intuitively, because I approach, approach what I do as a super fan, I guess, because I, I'm doing what I love, I'm doing what I want to do. I grew up obsessed with Star Wars and playing with Star Wars toys all the time. Come on. And, uh, and so I approach it from a very authentic place, so I try to do exactly what I, what I would want to do. In books that I've read about marketing, they talk about that you know it's important to go after you know the early adopters, the, the core audience, um, uh, the influencers, whatever whatever the hell they're called. So um, you know I think that 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 kind of strategy it, it is very important to, to apply to you know something like Heroes and uh, and there's a tension with servicing that audience and servicing a broad audience as well. But uh, I I think you can do it. If you build things into your content that are accessible to a genre, uh, to a broad audience, and you certainly don't talk down to and are authentic with your with your core, you know the first thing I did when I got to Heroes after meeting Tim and, and these guys Aaron and Joe who were already working working there, uh, I said, "What are our plans for Comic Con?" 
And they said, oh my God, we're so glad you're here. We haven't been able to get anything going. And they're like, well, we got to go to Comic-Con. We got to go. And you know, we, that day, the producer made a phone call, and we set up our Comic-Con you know, presence. Because it, it was so important for me that, that we take, took, took this thing to Comic-Con and, and shared it with, with people who I, who I felt intuitively would love this property and then would go out and, and talk about it and become, become our most core devoted base that would support our property in times of, would support it always, but maybe if there were times when it wasn't doing so well, they would be there for us and support us because they knew that we cared about what we were doing. I think also um, it, in terms of the tension between the mass appeal and, and the, uh, the core fan base appeal, uh, what, what Heroes is doing successfully, what Lost to a degree did successfully was that the, um, the, the arcs, the characters, um, they were all involved with powerful emotions and they were relatively clear um, as, uh, insofar as um, their agendas uh, as, as human beings. Uh, but the, the transmedia element around it uh, made the thing um, much more deep, rich, and, and complex so that if you were a fan, if you did like these characters and the premise, you had resources which were official, which were a part of the true persistent world that you can delve into as deep as you care to go. You could spend a, a few minutes a day. You could spend hours a day um, uh, you know, trying to find out what's really going on with those numbers and, and so forth. And you could find out that answer and be rewarded uh, uh, with, with that answer uh, in a way that somebody viewing the, just the TV show never would or might not even care about. So, so I your think that was and your point really, is, really is brilliant, important. and that was one of the brilliant things about the way that Tim crafted these characters. Is they were all incredibly archetypal. Like, oh, there's the cop who can hear people's thoughts. Like, <laughs> I understand that. Oh, there's the cheerleader who is, you know, thinks she's invul she is invulnerable. That they were very archetypal characters that a broad audience could connect with and could understand, could could grok those characters immediately, and a, and a genre audience could see things in them that were deeper and richer and, and built uh, upon that. An illustration I just heard the other day: uh, a mom and her son are watching Heroes. They both love the show. The son points out uh, a, a character in the background who has a few lines and walks out of there. And he gives that character's backstory to his mom. And the mom says, I, I watch this every week. What are you talking about? Yeah. And, and so he's got something. He's cool because he can deliver a piece of information mm -hmm. to the rest of his family that actually makes them appreciate um, this universe even more. And, and that's very, very powerful. You're giving something to the fan, an Easter egg, a, a, a bonus. Uh, that, that as a gatekeeper, they can then bring back to, to their community and, and say, hey, check this out. That's a really good micro example of how the hardcore can service the, the broad base. I wanted to comment on, you touched on this a little, and I don't know where any of you guys are on this, but when it comes to creating this stuff, I have to say for me, and I don't know about you guys, I never think about all the things we're talking about today. I don't <laughs> think about the... Uh, marketing, the focus groups. I, honestly, I don't think about how I'm going to get the show through the down times with the internet. I don't think about any of that. I want to say, you said it, and this is what I've lived by for 30 years. I think about what I want to see the most. And that's it. And it's like, what do I want to see? What do I want to do? And it's, I, was, I had the privilege of when I was younger of going to a panel like this where David Lean was, was speaking. And he said that great cliche of do what pleases you. And if it doesn't please the public, get out of show business. And <laughs> I live by that. 
you know, and die by it at times. But I never think about in a calculate like the stuff we talk about in here is all reverse engineering what we do. Exactly. And, it's, and it's really cool. And the stuff that he talks about, I always go, yes, absolutely. But I don't put it in the words that Henry has. Yep. But when I start this stuff and when I teach my writing students at SC, it's write the movie you want to see the most. Yeah. Do the show that you would watch. And I got to a point, this is interesting, in my career where I'm a big gamer. okay. And I was making two shows. I did 132 hours in three years. I directed 20 of them. And one day I looked in the mirror and I said, would I watch this stuff? No, it was horrible, Danny. I wouldn't watch it. <laughs> one, one of them was horrible. One of them was OK. But I wouldn't, I, I don't really watch TV even. I play games. And then I had the chance to go work at EA for five years in games and realized there's more value back to film. But I actually am starting to look at film, as I said to Henry earlier, as a piece, not the king thing that all this other stuff is just consumer products that drip off of. I'm starting to look at film as, well, there's a channel where I can get certain levels of emotion and certain storytelling things I can't do in games. But if my game is tied to that and extends it, now I have certain emotional values I got from those people that are in my mindset from the movie that I can bring into the game because a designer, I can't deliver some of that stuff. Because I'm not going to make you, as a game designer, sit there and watch a movie in bad CG with rubbery lips. I'm not going <laughs> to do that. So, but really, the reason I brought this up is because, oh, I love talking about this stuff. I love all these points. But when I sit down at the blank page, it's what do I think is cool. I and, mean, and just to build on that for a second, it, and that was exactly my take on it, exactly my experience you know, working on, on Alias, the transmedia stuff that we did on Alias. We did you know, very rudimentary web games and you know, puzzles. And they were very kind of arcane. And we used steganography and answering machines and stuff. We, when I say we, the, there was a few writers on the show who did that because we loved the show. And we were excited about doing that stuff creatively. And it was how we wanted to express ourselves. And we did it for fun. It was something that we just thought, oh my god, this is the coolest thing. Let's build our story out. And that you know, has been my experience. And now we're at a point where that has you know, where, where that is, you know, I discovered convergence culture. Mark Warshaw turned me on to this book. And oh my god, this is called transmedia? Holy <laughs> shit, that's what I'm doing? That's fantastic. <laughs> and, and, and now you know, they're you know, NBC has a transmedia department on Heroes, and but it, but it all grew out of a, of a of a fan's passion for doing something that they loved around a property that they loved, um, and uh, and that I, you know, and and just another thing about the the, the critical studies thing is so freaking helpful uh, in in terms of helping people like like me who do this and Danny probably who do Danny doesn't read. I just met him. Uh, but uh, people like us who are creative from a very uh, passionate, instinctive place and, uh, and are just making stuff because we love it. And then to be able to have thoughtful people you know, talk to us about what's working in it, about you know, why it's working, about our process. And that's not usually the network execs whose job it is to talk to you about it. Disaster. That's not what you're talking about, Jesse. Total disaster. But you know, <laughs> talking to someone like Henry or you know, someone like Al uh, Alex you know, who, who works at MIT, chatting with him about, uh, about narrative it has been very helpful in me in looking forward at, at how I will shape the way that I work and, and being kind of like therapy, being able to analyze the way I created and seeing what worked and what didn't and being able to apply what works you know, moving to the future. So mm -hmm. the critical studies. Thing and giving us, giving us names and labels and structures for stuff, is crazy important. It's cool. Mm -hmm. um, if I could challenge a, a little of what uh, you're, you're talking about and, and uh, oh, reach to the, the a little bit of the darker side of this tension, 
that exists between the mass and, and the, uh, the cult or niche uh, core, core audience. Um, if, if you alienate um, that core audience, uh, you are going to erode everything. Um, mm -hmm. That's my feeling. You, um, and, the hardcore. You mean the core? The, you the, mean hardcore, the hardcore audience. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Uh, let's true. let's look at, um, at, at two properties: uh, the the X Files and and Enterprise, um, where where uh, in, these are these are become um, something even more than the original visionary could have imagined, um, and they become uh, properties that belong to the world, uh, and and they are bigger than even the people creating the the property. So if, if for some reason you stop being true to that property, if you stop being the, the steward, and, and I use that, that term a lot, uh, you, you're there to shepherd and steward this, this franchise, this brand, this wonderful uh, universe. Uh, if you stop doing that um, and, and start to noodle your own thing and please yourself a little too much. Well, <laughs> let me, let me, um, I got a great anecdote. People are gonna get pissed yeah. off and, and walk away and then if the geek is pissed off with the with the property and walks away and says, uh, "Look, uh, uh, Spider-Man didn't use his spider sense once in Spider-Man Three, but he did in Part One and Part Two, Joe Average actually thinks about that and goes, "What was with that? <laughs> what you know? Huh? That, that left a bad taste in my mouth. I didn't know why." The geek knows there's why, a big difference. And there's a problem. There's a big difference between originals and adaptations. Okay. Okay, there's a big, big difference. I have two quick anecdotes that are just on this point. I wrote The Flash last year. My mission was relaunch it for a new generation. Okay, this is exactly the point he said. Okay, mm -hmm. relaunch it for a new generation. Okay, we're going to make Bart the Flash. And so we created new villains, new Flash, and the six guys on Comic Block, the hardcore guys, destroyed us. I mean, that was exactly what he said. They took us apart. Now, we were on a mission from the editorial to do this, right? In retrospect, I was talking to one of the best writers on The Flash just the other day on the picket line, and I said, <laughs> I said, I just, I should have used like three of the most popular rogues to introduce this new character. You know, to not do all this new stuff, but our mission was forget the hardcore. This is the head editor at DC. Forget them. It's about the kids. It's about a new generation. Well, who buys The Flash? Well, first of all, comic book readers are all over 30 anyway <laughs> now. And it's all guys who really, all they care about is the canon. All they care oh. about is every detail, exactly what you just said. We had, you know, we're, we're sitting there with Wikipedia and another one, you know, <laughs> trying to find out, well, in 1966, who was Barry Allen's sister, you know, all this crap. And we get some of them wrong. We go to Comic-Con, we're on a panel, we're getting assaulted, sorry, <laughs> assaulted, assaulted by the hardcore. How could you say that one of the twins had brown eyes and they were green? And it's like, sorry. I mean, I was sitting up here like this going, my bad. Sorry. Yeah. You know, I wanted to say, how about no editorial help? I wanted to say that, but I, I, you know, I was trying to be professional. Good job. Uh, uh, and, go just, and just to build on Jeff's point, you're absolutely correct. And, and it's 100%, and it's something that we, you know, there's different versions of it. There's a version where a creator of a show maybe created something that's incredibly popular, and they maybe are working on it for a long period of time, or whatever period of time, and then they might get bored of it and might want to do something else or might want to try something else and change up the show significantly that is what they want to do creatively, but it steps away from what their original vision was and they can potentially, you know, they can potentially alienate an audience. Another way to do that is obviously with, with, uh, with advertising and certainly with something like product integration. 
is a way that if your show appears to be selling out, uh, you, can, you can alienate uh, uh, your audience significantly, very immediately. And that's, you know. That's a tricky one. That's one of the things yeah. that keeps me up at night, you know, that yeah. kind of thing, because I live in a world where to sustain the budget of heroes, uh, product integration is a necessity. It's, and, and I, just because I'm that guy, I look at it as an opportunity. Awesome, fantastic, this is cool. And I got to integrate cell phones. I got to integrate, you know, Cisco security systems. I got to integrate a car. I can do all that. If you allow me to do it creatively and organically and authentically and weave it into my property so that it feels germane to the, what the characters are doing and as a natural part of the world. And that is something that is very challenging to do. You know, when advertisers come into that, the product integration space, they have very specific <coughs> needs and very specific requirements. And, you know, in my experience in the past, that those needs have been passed down on paper and handed to the writers or whoever, and, and you've been told you have to do this. On I top of everything this. else. And I have to that's do that. Happen more and more. But yeah. here's the thing where mm -hmm. we kind of spun it on heroes. We said, great, okay, awesome. Get me in the room with the people who are telling me I have to do this and let me work with them. Mm. Get the Cisco guys in yeah. here. Show me what you got. Oh my God, that's fucking awesome. Mm -hmm. That is so cool. I can make that work. Get yeah, the Sprint guys that. in here. Yeah. This yeah. is fantastic. And as soon as you start to have a dialogue with these people and, and, you, and, engage, and engage with them creatively, you can come up with stuff that is, that is organic to your property and, and mitigate right. the none risk of it's, of Right, none of it's, in what I've seen, none of it's popped. You know, nothing's popped on your show. We what, did, the, oh, which one? I can't say anything bad. Okay, well, yes. but I, my argument for that stuff is always, I don't drink Mudweiser beer. I don't drink any beer, but I mean, I don't drink, <laughs> you know how they, they all, you, in the old TV, you get the prop yeah, guy the brings in the fake right. brands right. of everything, yeah. and it all looks kind of cheesy. I'd rather see real products on the table, because that's what we deal with. But as, and that's going to happen more and more. Um, with branded entertainment, because with you bring up TiVo, which I brought up before, and people aren't watching commercials anymore. Right. The advertisers are bringing a lot of money in. And we've met with a lot of major conglomerates that say we want to give you money to develop a movie around this product, right. where the product becomes the central driving and, force. I, and I, you know, I've had those meetings it's as well. Really you know, organic companies that are trying to do that in the TV space. Where, it's you know, hard again, to walk like away from the amount of money they're willing to spend. Well, I did. Awesome. I, you know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm up for it. You I know, did and, one of the first ones. As long as there's some sort of creative control <coughs> and, and just a good version of something like that that just I thought about as I was watching the earlier panel is, is it the starter wipe that, that was sponsored by Pond's hand cream? You know, <laughs> that they sponsored this freaking show I, I think about ponds now. I'm like, the start, I was like, now I have ponds on the brain. Like, it was incredibly effective that they, that, that they did something like that. So it's a very recent example of something like that that can be successful. And I think the women, which really? was just shot in Boston. And, and we've done great product integrations, I think, with sponsor. Nissan. We've done some great, we did some amazing things last year with this car called the Nissan Versa. Nissan had a new car they wanted to launch. They were very excited about it. And because we were a new show and, you know, it worked out well that they didn't have a lot of specific requirements, uh, and we found a way to weave it into the story where one of the fan favorite characters, this guy Hiro Nakamura, who's a cute little Japanese guy who loves being a hero and loves what he's doing, he, uh, he keeps talking about the Nissan Versa, Nissan Versa. And it was <laughs> organic to who he was. It was organic to the story. The car became a character, really, in, in the narrative that did not feel forced, and it was incredibly successful for Nissan and has been successful on an international level where they now have a, a, I think it's a Nissan branded, or I'm sorry, a Heroes branded Versa in France. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and the Heroes 
Iconography is built all around the, around, uh, the, the Versa campaign. I, I, <laughs> I will admit, uh, being a, going back and forth, I don't have a car in Boston. I've become a big fan of Zip cars and picked out Nissan Versa. Come on. <laughs> and that's so okay. As so, Gordon, let me well. pull you in a little more decisively here and talk about Narnia and what Walden has been trying to do. That is sure. your take. Most of Walden's films have been fantasies of one sort or another. If I would go back in time, the two groups I would have said were most uh, objected to fantasy, one were conservative Christians who <laughs> witnessed the Harry Potter protest, mm -hmm. and the other would be school teachers and librarians who were often snatched the science fiction or fantasy books from our hands when I, <laughs> when I was growing up. And that's what you've just said. You're, you're recording very effectively uh, through the strategies Walden's involved in. So how have you reconciled fantasy as a genre with those particular segments of the, the viewership? Well, we... We look for good stories, and that's why when the company started, why we started going to, we spend a, a lot of time and a lot of money going to teacher conferences, librarian conferences, to understand the books and the stories that kids are reading that they're interested in. And it's actually, it, it wasn't a genre film at all, but the first uh, successful movie that Walden had was Holes, based on the book by Lewis Sacker, who also wrote the screenplay, which came to us because <laughs> a classroom wrote a letter to us and said, this is a great book. You need to make a movie out of it. It certainly helped having the author of the book write the screenplay, because you had some cover there for the changes that were made. The Chronicles of Narnia, I mean, that is a very powerful story for people, whether they read it understanding that it's a Christian allegory or people that read it and had no idea. And I think it was the, the power of the literature that enabled us to make a huge fantasy film that appealed to an audiences that, that might not otherwise have been drawn to a big fantasy movie. Christian audiences liked it because we were very respectful of the material. We did, certainly didn't make a literal adaptation of it. If you read the book and then you go see the movie, the movie opens with a great scene of the bombing of London that is just touched on in the book, certainly not to the extent that we opened the movie with. But people, in seeing that, they were brought into the story. And they understand that we made certain cinematic changes to it to bring it onto the screen. But we were very careful not to take out anything that was in the book. If there was a Christian allegory, we were going to leave it in there and so that we wouldn't offend the Christian audience that really believed in the property. Uh, but we weren't going to build that up so that we would turn off an audience that might say, oh, that's a Christian movie. I don't want to go see that. So we just said we're going to be very faithful to the book. The book has appealed to a mass audience, and it worked. But do you, did you, like in your new job, like with the new movie, right, with the next one, you Fantastic. must be doing a major, we a are. major campaign as far as integrating the story and, multi and stuff into schools and we're doing churches it. or whatever, right? You know, everybody assumed that, luckily for the last how many years, the books have all been sold as a package. There's seven books in the series. And the next movie we're making is Prince Caspian. And we understood that most people only read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, didn't really know the story of Prince Caspian. It was the, in the series, the way they're packaged, now it's the fourth book. We've done a huge campaign with teachers and librarians and faith groups introducing the story to them and saying, this is another great story. Introducing C.S. Lewis as a, you know, a great children's author, a great science fiction author. Um, and hopefully we'll be successful with that. But it's just pointing out, this is what's in the book. 
and this is what you're going to see on the screen. It's going to be a faithful adaptation. You don't have to worry that we're taking this out or we're going to downplay a certain thing. And, and that's just, as you were saying, all of you earlier, you can't talk down to your audience. You really have to be respectful of the, of the core fans of the property. So one of the questions from the audience is, how much of the revenue from Heroes comes from international sales? How does this influence the creative process? And maybe we should open this up beyond Heroes to talk about internationally, what are the implications of cult media, transmedia, storytelling? Yeah, I'm developing something right now for, um, for intermedia that's uh, because they, they feel that the syndicated market's coming back, where you can get 25 hours in one block, and they can sell it internationally first and then bring it over here. <laughs> and, it, and what they're excited about, and the property fits it, it's, well, they all got all worked up over 300, right? How can we do, uh, I, my opinion doesn't matter, but I'm really worked up over CG and live action. I love that stuff. So I'm developing a series, and, and for, but it's really starting overseas. Because look, overseas market has always been easier on action stuff anyway. I've always made action stuff. It's less wordy. They feel like they can relate to it. That's what the, the generalization is. I don't even know if that's true. But uh, the international market's really, really, really important for these properties. How is it for your show? It's been massive for, for, for Heroes. The success of Heroes internationally you know, took everyone who works on it. It was a complete surprise to us. And um, you know, there's a story that has often been quoted about how our cast went to went to Paris for the, the Jules Verne Awards, and, and the show had not been on TV yet in France. And yet, it everybody there had seen the show on BitTorrent, or whatever mm -hmm. the French equivalent is, and were recognizing people, you know, our, our actors on the streets and talking to them, and they were caught up with where the show was in the States, and they were, they were right there with it. And the, the, that international, you know, audience and the revenue that they can generate, when they do generate revenue, is incredibly important. And, um, you know, one of the, you know, crazy ideas that, you know, the crazy idea that I have that I'm incredibly excited about, and a lot of it is based on my, you know, my experience on how shows like Alias, Lost, and Heroes, you know, these kind of serialized stories that play to genre themes that are internationally accepted. You know, the, the, this thing that I'm working on is, is, a, is a new property, and it's designed to um, launch simultaneously internationally. But not that we create it here in America and then, you know, turn it on everywhere else at the same time. It's we create a format and we create and, and then go out and find international partners who want to create their own version of that show that is tied into the into the mythology um, and is and is a is a part of uh, of the show. So it's kind of like the kind of an ultimate transmedia global fiction idea that. You know, there's a, there's a. I'm Do not you want to control it? <laughs> yeah, the, and and. No, that, I mean, it's a serious question because. But, but and and that let me let me just finish it. And that's the idea is that it's creating a, it, it's a, it, I'm taking my experience from, in, in creating, properties and creating gaps in the oper, in the property where that people can express themselves, where that pe you know there's there's areas where people can can express themselves that can can be part of the mythology without you know, altering it significantly. So it, it's something that's designed to allow everybody to be creative and to participate in, in the experience on, on a global level. Uh, and, and it's something that's only possible now be, because of the success of international, the international success of these shows, international money, and obviously the internet and transmedia storytelling is incredibly important. And with this property that I'm working on and any new AAA franchise media property, 
transmedia storytelling has to be built into the DNA of your property. It has to be organic to the property and has to be, you have to think about it from the, from the very beginning or find a way to incorporate it so that you can, um, you can reach your audience, you can generate revenue in, in an organic way and, and continue to make your show and, and grow it in the future. So this, this international thing is just you know, very exciting for me and it's all about the, the international market. Um, I have a, a kind of international uh, incident. <laughs> uh, <coughs> uh, in 2002, uh, Starlight Runner was approached by Mattel to create uh, some story content around the 35th anniversary of Hot Wheels cars for their website. Uh, we went in and pitched and said, you know, uh, we can start it on the web and, and extend it into, we create little uh, mini comics for, for toys and so forth that you could pack in. We could do it there, and just imagine we could then jump the storyline into a series of, uh, of videos because you, have, you guys have a relationship with uh, a mainframe entertainment. They do the Barbie videos and so forth. And, um, and then uh, we'll rig it in a way that you can um, uh, create a TV series out of it and so forth and make hours of, of content relatively inexpensively. They, to my shock, they went for it. <laughs> I mean, I was fantasizing in front of their whole board, and, and they, they approved it and said we have to do it immediately. So, uh, so right away, we were creating a transmedia uh, storyline uh, around the Hot Wheels cars, one of the very first times that a narrative would be applied uh, to these, uh, these toys. Spectacular. It's an $800 million a year uh, a franchise for Mattel. Um, and we started writing these comics, and the comics had to be in the stores. This was in June. The first wave of content had to be in stores around the planet uh, in November, in time for the Christmas rush. They shoehorned it in to their schedule. So we're writing a race around the world that takes place both around planet Earth and um, in this alternate dimension that occasionally the cars fall into. And, and so you can have mile-high loop-de-loops and, and things like that. And, um, and so we were just putting landmarks in there and, um, and giving Mattel heart attacks because uh, we were in uh, um, Rio de Janeiro near, near the Statue of Christ and, and you had to get there first and, and so forth. No, no, no. Uh, why? Uh, you know, why? It's a, an established landmark. Well, yes, but, but uh, our, our products are sold in uh, India and in Saudi Arabia, and you cannot have a statue of Christ in your, in your comic book. Um, and so we conceded that. Uh, but where we drew the line was, was that Mattel said, no women in this storyline. The, there are 36 cars in this, in this race. <laughs> And there, there is a peripheral cast of 10 characters. Not a single female uh, is, is in here. Why? Well, our, our, our consumer base uh, doesn't want girls in, in, their, in their entertainment. And we said, <laughs> no, why? <laughs> really, why? Because that's just not, uh, you know, that's not a reason. Um, and, and the bottom line is, and we heard this through back channels, was, well, um, this product is, is sold in nations where women drivers don't exist. Um, this would not be a good thing. And you know what? Um, Starlight Runner took a stand. And we said, then, then we're out of here. <clears throat> you know, find somebody else. And what happened? What's the punchline? <laughs> you did it anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
They're we, out of we, there. We almost, we almost lost a million dollar account. And, um, and we, we called Mainframe Entertainment and said, what do you think about this? And they said, well, we, we're not even aware that, right. that this rule exists. And I said, well, yes, it does. And they said, no, it doesn't. And we, we, uh, we kind of became solidarity. And, and we went to Mattel and said, the, the, the chicks are in. That's great. Um, is that World Race? Uh, this was World Race. Good, awesome. Wow. Dude, I got the DVD. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, I you, highly recommend it. If you think about, um, I'm, I'm probably getting into all kinds of trouble. Sorry, Mattel. Um, <laughs> if, if they, Be they careful. Said, <laughs> they're taping this, dude. Oh, I don't and they're care. live blogging it. Hey, hey, I'm from New York. Um, the, the girl... <laughs> The girl gets, they said, the girl needs to get in trouble and be rescued by the guys. And I said, oh, God. Um, and, um, and so, you know what, we, we scripted. She goes, uh, she's surrounded by lava. <laughs> Her car is sinking. And she goes, dudes, can you, can you snap it up? Um, and, uh, and they rescue her. And, um, and then she solves a major problem in the next episode with mathematics and all this sort of stuff. Um, and you know what? Not with cooking? N not with cooking. <laughs> yeah. you, you know what? She, uh, not a peep from those, uh, from those Middle Eastern countries. Uh, the, the, the children of Saudi princes are watching Hot Wheels World Race hundreds of times uh, on their, their DVD players. So, uh, and so and a quick hero's example of something like that is mm -hmm. obviously we have, you know, Hiro Nakamura, this Japanese character, and, and his you know, Japanese friend, and they're, they're a huge part of the show, and they're on these adventures, and they speak in Japanese, and yeah, it's subtitled. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so, and, and there are some of it's in Japan, and, and they're clearly, these are Japanese people. Well, the actor <laughs> who plays Ando is Korean. Um, so how is that going to play in the Japanese market, that there's a Korean actor portraying Japanese? His Japanese, how good is it? You know, Japanese are very specific about how, how about that language. It's an incredibly complicated language, and and, and it's uh, and, and I guess it's you know for me they're talking. I'm like that sounds fantastic. That sounds like Japanese. <laughs> but people are Japanese are like I don't understand what the fuck they're saying. I can't understand. So like blah 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 blah. blah. Don't, don't, well, whose no Japanese idea. is good on your show? Uh, both of them speak perfect Japanese. Uh, so there, there are certain things that uh, you know culturally might have been a problem in trans in translating in taking the show to the Japanese market. It was like, oh fuck, is this going to work? You know, oh, it, huge success, yeah. fucking massive, crazy success in Japan. Um, and, and, and there have been so many meetings and so much you know shrying and you know conversations about this thing. You know, was, was it going to work? And absolutely is going to work because it was coming from a very pure, honest, creative place and it was done from a great spirit and thematically it connected, connects with people around the world. Good deal. So mm -hmm. you, have, you have to stand up and, and, deal. and deal with those kinds of things. Okay, there was a woman down here with a question. Um, just related to the topic that just came up about <clears throat> taking a social stance and um, dealing with uh, minorities and improving diversity. Um, just last month I went to the SAG National Scene American Summit. Um, the American Scene National Summit and uh, was part of the Performers with Disabilities Committee and um, trying to get people with facial differences um, incorporated into more media opportunities, be it commercials, TV, film, anything. Um, right now I work at Tufts and I'm a facial prosthetist, so I see people with facial amputations from burns, 
So the last Monday's, or sorry, the Heroes episode that just aired, I was really interested in with the president having a brain injury. Um, there was did, did actually- it work? Was it offensive or was it okay? It was good, it was fine. Okay. Um, but uh, the, there was actually a Marvel comic um, donation to the Phoenix Society for Burn Survivors where they made an adolescent boy comic book that we used as a school reentry tool to tell other kids about what it's like to have mm. a burn injury and what it's like to be different. And um, it's the largest minority, but it has the least representation in Hollywood. There's um, you know, 54 million Americans in the country with a disability, and it's 20% of our population, but they're you know, the smallest represented in um, Hollywood. So I guess I just wanted to say I would really love to see a character with a disability. Um, well, it's really, it is up to us, and the casting yeah. director that I used for years, and I know he's worked with, April Webster. The greatest. She has always brought in disabled people. Mm -hmm. So even in my f one of my early shows, I had one of the main characters was in a wheelchair, but he wasn't disabled. He was just the actor. That's, That's different. the biggest problem for the performers. Right. Oh, they yeah. get 4.1 right. days a year of work and $1,000 a year of pay. It's the same thing as when you, it's, it's, this is interesting. So if you want to cast the Native American, and you always want to have a real Native American, right? So the 10 people come in, and they're all bad, right? So right. we had a, some guys come in. I have used real disabled people in wheelchairs, but you have to get the ones that are really good actors because that's mm -hmm. the bottom line at the end. I absolutely used a guy in three episodes of one show who was genuinely disabled in a wheelchair, but it's because he nailed it, and he was better than anybody else. And we will also put somebody in a wheelchair who wasn't in a wheelchair in the script. But that was really, I have to credit the casting director in that mm -hmm. case, because she was always pushing us to bring in disabled actors, because mm -hmm. that was a passion of hers. Well, you know, uh, when Tim Kring created Heroes, he wanted to create a show that, that showed him the world that, that he saw, the world that he knew, that incorporated you know, everybody, you know, every kind of ethnicity, every type of, of person, whether, you know, whoever they be, he wanted to be able to incorporate them into his narrative. You know, w we were lauded for having, you know, many, you know, e ethnic characters on, on our show. And I hope I get, I hope I'm using the right PC words. Mm -hmm. You know, I probably am not. But, um, you know, we had African-American, you know, characters. We had, you know, uh, Asian characters, and, and you know, we had them in in what would be termed, you know, mixed relationships. Well, and three, how many? Two? I don't three? know. They were. It was crazy. It, it was, was very noticeable. To it me. was. It was. <coughs> it was. It was significant for television. And um, you know what? What we found was that um, obviously people loved that stuff and responded very well to that stuff. But in terms of being um, locked by the form into a specific on group of ensemble characters. It's something that, that I don't know if, if it, people here are watching Heroes Season 2, but we've been trying to introduce new characters into our show, and it's been very challenging for us because the audience has such an attachment to the characters that they're familiar with. So it's mm. difficult for us to bring you know, different, type, different characters into it, like you know, someone who has you know, burn, a burn victim or has burn issues or is burned is a fucking phenomenal character for something like Heroes. To be able to tell stories with that character is awesome. And it's a matter of having the space you know, within our narrative to do it. And that's one of the reasons why we created a sh this you know, kind of offshoot of Heroes called Heroes Origins, which is going to be an anthology show that, that told stories that did not involve the Heroes characters, but were part of the same universe and you know, through transmedia connections would be interconnected, but would allow us to creatively explore other stories and be able to tell stories of other people so that we could have someone who was in a wheelchair who could de develop abilities, or we could go you know, have an, a, an Aborigine, you know, tell, tell a story, or go to France and go around the world and tell, tell stories with these different, different types of characters. Did you write characters. some of those before they got killed? I, uh, 
Did any of them get I written? spent three hours on it and I got the phone call, it was dead. So really? luckily I hadn't spent that much time on it. It's but a great idea. we had a lot of people who, you know, we had Eli Roth and Kevin Smith and all these, you know, and Tim certainly, his idea that he was doing for it was phenomenal and hopefully post-strike it'll kick off again because I think it'll help. Tim's original vision of the show was a very humanistic idea about people around the world, ordinary people coming to get, who didn't know each other, coming together and finding they have, they have connections and, and, and working together to do nothing less than save the world. And he's very into that idea and that, that hopeful message. And when you're on, you know, with, when you're dealing with a serial and when you're dealing with an ensemble, it, it can take you in directions that are, it's very hard to break away from. So um, something like Origins would be a great opportunity for us to tell other kinds of stories. I hope that, I hope that was on point a little bit. Okay, there's a question that's been hovering on the board for a good chunk of the time, which basically asks, how does transmedia storytelling get impacted by media consolidation? Does it make it easier? Does it make it harder, it, given the, the sort of limited ownership? It of should make it easier, but I think it doesn't. I mean, it, it should, because you would think that they would see that there's all these revenue streams, because you you're only talking to guys with dollar signs in their eyes anyway. So if you can show them all these revenue streams, you'd think, actually, I left Electronic Arts to do this, to try to set this kind of stuff up. And what you run into is the movie division could care less about TV. They hate consumer products, and they really don't care about the comics at all. Unless, they're gonna, they, unless they can get first rights to adapt it to a movie, they don't care about going the other way. Everybody's protecting their own little piece of the pie. More than they're protecting their content, they're protecting their own careers. This is the culture of Hollywood right now. And it's, I think it's going to happen, but it's going to happen the opposite way. It's not with the media coming together. It's going to happen independently. I think there was a question in the things that we were given about are some of the transmedia stuff, is it going to come from fans and outside the core? I think it always has. I think it's even more important. Maybe we have to give them more tools. I, was, um, I worked on a video game called The Sims. I was one of the original team on that thing. And what I learned from that game was give the users the tools. Give the users the tools, and they'll do your job for you. And, and that game, they did our job for us. I mean, you just say, it's like, it's like we're all talking about. You set the stage, mm -hmm. and you let the players come in. It's a lot more like, um, I was going to ask one of you guys about when you approach these projects, and it's like in the game space, instead of approaching it, like I work at SC, where in the writing department, everything has to start from character. Okay, I don't actually believe in that necessarily, but that's what they teach hardcore. They're all pretty old school there. And then in the new media side, what I'm getting at is we have to build worlds. That's where, that's where I'm headed with this, with this point, is that when I look at these spaces, um, we have to look at, is that a place I want to go? Now, I'm starting to talk a little more game, and we're getting away from TV and movies. Let's wait and talk about that in just a second. Okay. Because it's the greatest. You're absolutely right, and there's so much. And I just want to go back to, to the, the thing about the... Oh, about the corporate, uh, about dealing with the, the transmedia, and, and does this, this, you know, corporate convergence make it easier? And, and, and it, you know, the, the rhetoric that Danny used is absolutely correct. You know, the rhetoric that I'll use is that, you know, these companies are have been pursuing a, a specific type of model for a very long time, and they have been, in the way that you know, London was kind of built on top of itself. It, it, there's a massive infrastructure with, within these companies, and and, and you. When you think about these companies, you can't just think about it like it's a company and it has one idea and it has one vision. And it ha you know, in my experience, the companies that I work for, media companies, that is not the case at all. There are very, multiple departments, very different department, you know, separated departments who could be doing the same thing, and maybe they haven't even met each other. 
And maybe they've never talked to each other. And maybe they don't know that there's an asset in that department that could help me. A and there's, a, there's no, um, there, there, potentially some of these companies might have a lack of synergy w within their organizations. And, and, and that can be incredibly frustrating to people who are trying to be creative and trying to be innovative within, within these spaces. And that's something that w we're seeing now, a sea change within these companies, that they're understanding that transmedia and that synergy is a very real thing and is very necessary if they're going to exploit these uh, spaces properly. I would say working on the Chronicles of Narnia, Disney has been a great partner. And although you know, we used to just call it franchise management and not transmedia, but every aspect of the company and our company gets together right now, at least on a monthly or biweekly basis, to go over everything from video games that are being developed to the consumer products that are being developed to other possible spin-offs. Uh, the C.S. Lewis estate is very involved in what can and can, can't be done which is probably a good thing, because we can't, you know, there are limitations to how much you can exploit it. But we are, as, you know, as long as we are being respectful of the property, we're looking at, we're looking at a, a live experience to roll out with the premiere of Prince Caspian. And, and I, and I think Disney's, they understand it. Absolutely, you know, it, it, it is cultural. And D Disney does get it in, in many ways. And I worked with them for a number of years and had a great experience and met some wonderful people who worked there. And, and you know, one of the, Disney's awesome, totally. And, uh, and they really get it. And it, what Bob Iger's done there has been, has been spectacular. And, and, you know, hopefully within that infrastructure, there's a way to connect the people the, at the executive level with the creatives on the, show, on, who, on the content level. And that's something that is that's a, the, that's it, a right freaking there. massive disconnect right now. Yeah, that, that there are all these divisions yeah. in these companies that are meeting with each other and talking about, we'll do this transmedia thing. Oh, yes, we'll make this thing, and we'll do that. And oh, we can have this, creative, this partner, this you know, Texaco, or whatever it would be. And there's no connection to the people who actually will be making the content. They're all, there's no connection to the content itself because at of all. that. And, and, and it's, <coughs> it's uh, in, not, in my personal experience, it maybe it hasn't been a disaster. Maybe it's, it, it's worked out pretty well, and the people at NBC have been, have been awesome, and it's been as challenging for them as, as it's There's been challenging There's a big difference, and what's really interesting is that Heroes, the case of Heroes and the case of Narnia, they could, can't even be talked about in the same sentence, in my mind. Like, I worked on Harry Potter, right? They have a built-in brand that's a built-in franchise that's pre-established. They've got seven books. They know they're going to keep going on those movies, okay? Yeah. Everybody's going to line up. Okay, everybody's going to line up. They're going to have no problems. Pirates of the Caribbean, everybody's going to line up because they get it. They don't have to understand a piece of content or anything else. It's already, there's revenue, there's dollars. We're going to do it. But when you're talking, what's interesting to me is doing it, I'm not saying it's only interesting to me because I'm very interested in Potter and Narnia and things like that. But when you take something original from zero, like Tim did and you did and those guys, and Get, I guess uh, Riley was behind him early big time because you got major promotion. I was watching the promotion for Heroes saying they're spending more money on advertising this thing than they did on making it. I mean, that was, that was easy for me to see. And I was going, what's going on over there? Actually, it made me, it turned me off a little bit. That's why I discovered it on DVD because I just, I was, I was offended by the hard sell a little bit. It was, and I don't like Kevin much. Well, a lot it's of it can be, you know, can, can be campaign. Lost was very heavy hand, you know, Lost was out there and all over, but their right. campaign potentially one could say it was more elegant. But starting know. these things mm -hmm. from zero and getting the corporation and rallying them around, my God, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gigantic achievement. I, I do yeah. have a, a kind of response, as usual. Um, the, um, the, um, 
what's happening now uh, with the Producers Guild is that uh, they're getting together and defining uh, the, the, the notion of transmedia and transmedia producers. Um, a, a lot of what it is that they're, they're trying to do is based on, I, I guess, their observations of some of what we're doing at Starlight Runner. We, what, what happens is some of these uh, huge uh, corporations are, are silos, and they don't talk to each right. other, and it's very, very difficult to get this sort of thing going. Even in a case like Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, fantastic, yeah. you have a trilogy there, but don't you want an evergreen franchise? Don't you want to take that universe and make it Star Wars so that people want to keep visiting they it do. long after the yeah. third, third thing? The only way to do that is to, um, is to fabricate and persist with a transmedia experience that, that goes on and on. And, um, and one of the things that we do well, uh, the fun stuff that Starlight Runner does is, is that we map out these transmedia storylines and, and these rollouts and uh, create strategies behind how the story jumps from one medium to the next and how it uh, is orchestrated and works of a piece and, and conveys the vision of the, the creators. The other thing that we do that's sort of the secret sauce is because we are a third party, a, a, a sort of a, a commando unit um, that is granted uh, a little bit of a carte blanche by the powers that be to, to kind of kick down doors in all of these different divisions and say, hey, what are you guys working on? Let's make sure that it is a piece uh, of a piece with this universe so that Jack Sparrow doesn't jump into a time machine and start shooting people with laser guns. Um, um, it, um, it allows us to, to uh, use, use a huge amount of diplomacy and, um, and a huge amount of, of coordination to essentially become the shepherd, the clearinghouse for the intellectual property. And, um, and, and so this plan uh, that, that's kind of the first phase of, of transmedia production could be implemented because a task force has been assembled from uh, multiple divisions that actually does have the power to to implement this. Um, what about the, what about the brand management in a situation like that? I can't imagine them turning that over to a third party. It, it it's happening. Dude. Really? It's happening. No, I'm asking. We're, we're we're working with the brand managers and and uh, and they love us because they're juggling uh, the next Narnia picture and 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 the and Dweezil Zappas thing and and so you know it's it's all happening for them. So so to have somebody who's actually doing the legwork. Uh, from New York, calling all these offices in Burbank, um, and, and coordinating this and, and helping to implement it is is actually helpful. Uh, but this, by the way, could not happen unless uh, there were very specific powers that be, um, visionaries yeah. by and large, who say, "I want that, I want that for my property," and and you've got to pay for it, and you've got to uh, to let these guys implement it. Uh, because they are representing my voice. So if it's uh, if it's Jim Cameron, if it's Bob Iger or Orin Aviv at, uh, at at Disney, um, if it's uh, if it's a, a new hotshot in brand management right. at Coca-Cola who says, you know what, we're going to do this, um, then uh, you know we we we're getting our our leg up in there. Uh, what I'm hoping is that uh, um, symposiums like this and and the continued communication of this methodology uh, will get other people to open their eyes and, and get people to play well together and, and so forth. I think the, your transmedia team, I think it's actually called 
now it's yeah we have our own we have kind of a transmedia department on on heroes and, and Mark Warshaw who's in the audience you know who was an innovator with transmedia content on a show called Smallville we brought him aboard heroes go. to to uh, to to help us do all this, this kind of stuff and 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 you, and that idea about finding individuals within these companies who do get it and who are at a place in their career where they want to attach to this property and they could be young so they're, they're maybe they're you know they're open to to risk you know, th th and it is risky. It's because it's very risky, and, and especially when you're launching a new TV show. We all see how quickly TV shows, you know, fail. So, who at this company is going to attach to a superhero show on broadcast? And and who do you find there? We found some amazing people. We found a woman named Jen Sprague who was in who was in marketing, I think, at the at the time, and she was incredibly supportive, you know, supportive of doing these kinds of things. And she found money for us to create a website where we could after Comic Con, so we could send fans to to a website that all came out of you know, her willingness to commit to our vision, even though it was something that was not part of their culture at all. And it's a matter, and you know, over the course of Heroes, we found those people within the organization of, and have brought them together in a very task force type, type situation. But for these companies to, to flourish in, in this space and for them to be able to take these transmedia concepts and lay them onto other properties, they need to create transmedia czars. They need to create, it's an iteration on who a brand manager might be and someone who can really oversee these properties and connect the different divisions with each other and let people yes. know what they're working on and connect with the creators and incorporate them into all the opportunities that are available to them. Do you guys ever have to show metrics on any of this stuff? Do you ever have to show <laughs> revenue? Because the real, here's what, I, the way it feels to me right now is that it's hot, it's sexy. This is from the executive point of view, not our point of view. It's hot, it's sexy, gotta have it, right? And that's going pretty, at some point, the guys like him are gonna go, well, wait a minute. We just spent 300 grand on the last three months on this Heroes things. What are the metrics that show me that I'm either bringing more audience, bringing more advertising, bringing all this stuff? So maybe I'm wrong, guys. Chime in no, on this. It's, it's actually but, a very valid. But right point. now, it's kind of like we can do this because no, it's no, no. cool. And no, even now, it's, they're saying what are the metrics? Uh, you know, if, if you're a but, Fortune but 500 company, but certainly NBC's found the metrics because they, they found they found metrics so they can sell advertising and they can they need to create transmedia czars. They need to create. It's an iteration on who a brand manager might be, and someone who can really oversee these properties and connect the different divisions with each other, and let people yes. know what they're working on, and connect with the creators, and incorporate them into all the opportunities that are available to them. Do you guys ever have to show metrics on any of this stuff? Do you ever have to show <laughs> revenue? Because the real here's what I, the way it feels to me right now is that it's hot, it's sexy. This is from the executive point of view, not our point of view. It's hot, it's sexy, gotta have it, right? And that's going pretty. At some point, the Guys like him are going to go, well, wait a minute. We just spent 300 grand on the last three months on this Heroes things. What are the metrics that show me that I'm either bringing more audience, bringing more advertising, bringing all this stuff? So maybe I'm wrong, guys. Chime in no, on this. It's, it's actually but, a very valid But uh, right point. now, it's kind of like we can do this because no, no, it's no. cool. And no, even now, they're saying what are the metrics? Uh, you know, if, if you're a but, Fortune but 500 But certainly NBC's company, found the metrics because they, they, found, they found metrics so they can sell advertising and they can fund a transmedia department, because right. these companies don't part with money. Right, that's or, why, that's uh, why. Unless I'm, there's money there. Right. That's the thing, they will never give us They're anything. not gonna do it because it's cool. No. Because we think it's they cool. They don't really do that, exactly. That they, you know, they'll do it in very small ways, or they'll create a division that investigates digital opportunities, but isn't really able to do anything. 
-hmm. And it's when they start kicking in money that you know that they've found something, that they've found a way to get paid. <laughs> right, right. So I, I think we're absolutely there, and, and, and in, in ter certainly on heroes in, in terms of right. our experience. Right, that, that is a, a, a fiction uh, piece, and and, um, and advertising is a possibility there. When you deal with a, 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 a Procter & Gamble or a Fortune 500 uh, company that wants to do that, um, that is not a Hollywood studio, it's a little trickier because yeah, you can plug your own product within within this stuff, but um, but you can't sell advertising to a potential rival and, and so forth. So there need to be other metrics as well, in addition to have you the dealt, notion that you can sell advertising. Have you done? Have you started looking at virtual world stuff? Oh sure. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I have a friends that have been building them for about a year Absolutely. out in L.A. To 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 finish the thought though, the um, uh, there is a division at United Talent Agency. Uh, UTA Online and, and so forth, they represent us, and, and they're actually uh, right now starting to build the, the kind of metrics that you're, you're talking about to use to help sell us and, and to help sell other uh, clients that they have that deal in transmedia uh, production. So that's a, that's it a, you know, it's a great point that Very you make. CAA thinking. starting that kind of thing as well, and, and ICM has some really smart people too. That's where I'm represented. And, uh, <laughs> and they would not be doing that if there wasn't money there. So that's clearly right. they know that they can get, get, get paid in that space. And, and you know, so it's I've a, lived through it's, a lot of these. It's harder to that, get paid through the traditional way. Yeah. So I, a lot that's is, a great point. you know, that's what's I'm making not it sure that, that people are certain they're going to make money on it. But it's it's certainly willing well, to risk the investment. I, I'm certain that, that that they're certain. But on your show, right? Your show is very special. Is. I don't know yeah. about that. I, I think do it not, is. I don't know about that. Are, yeah. it, 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 is it is it really? You know, there there are, are you know, any brand can probably almost any brand can find a way to incorporate trans some sort of transmedia you know content into it. That, that you know any successful property or brand mm -hmm. has a, has a, an audience that loves that, that brand and will want to find new and creative ways to interact with it. And, and if they're doing that in a space that is controlled by, the, you know, by, a, by a company, there's absolutely a way that they're going to monetize that. So, so I hate the cutoff where it's a great exchange, but I wanted to get a couple more questions from the sure, board in sure. here. So one that's been moving its way up fairly steadily is so far only officially produced transmedia experiences have been discussed. Does fan-generated transmedia content with heroes or other media objects fit into the equation. How are these efforts supported or suppressed? And one that's just dropped down from that, ask about legal and labor uh, barriers that might be involved in co-creation or co-authorship with the audience. So I wonder if you could address those questions together. Wow. I mean, you're talking about fan stuff, right? Yeah. Well, uh, anecdotal, anecdote. I did this show called The Sentinel <coughs> at about 1999 when it went off the air. And it was designed for uh, 18 to 39-year-old guys. And we created this fan base. We didn't create it. They created a fan base of 100% women on the internet. And I didn't know whether they had conventions all of a sudden. I still get emails from them. I become friendly with them. We've had reunions. And it's, you know, uh, hundreds or sometimes the biggest one, like 1,500 women showed up. And now they write fiction, right? And they write slash fiction, write fan fiction. Um, I did work with him back at EA. He showed, pointed me in a few directions, and I'm looking at my stuff on my own shows. Now, I think this whole conversation goes back to that first question about the hardcore, because we're talking about this is the hardcore. If people are going to create content because they love it, that's pretty hardcore, right? Now, back to my Sims example. Give them the tools, and they do it. I think there's a lot of potential, a lot of power, and I, t I still talk to my friends at EA all the time, and they're talking a lot about 
empowering the users. They're still talking a lot about that. So because it's, we don't have to make it, right? There's all these talented people out there who don't have access to the tools we have. And we give them the tools and they make stuff. Now, how do you organize that? How do you make it add value to your show? Those are challenges that I have no idea. I mean, those are things to talk about. You look at the success of Second Life online, which basically is give people tools to build stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's become very successful. That absolutely is, you know, I'm obsessed with that shit. and trying to <laughs> yeah. figure out ways to give people to play with, my, with, uh, with the brands that I work on in the way that I used to creatively play with things like Star Wars and, cool. and think about it and, bu and build my own stories around that. And we're very, you know, as, as Ferris was saying earlier on the other panel, you know, he was talking about finding gaps in, in, the, con in, the, in the content where people can, can play. And, and that's something that I'm, you know, very, you know, think about, think about a lot. And, 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 even, and there's the hardcore people who will create stuff, and, and that's awesome. But I think there are ways that you can reach out to a broad audience and find ways that they can interact with your, with your product. And, you know, one thing that we're doing that came out of our relationship with Sprint and our Sprint integration that, that we did. Tim Kring had a great idea about, um, you know, is there a way that, that people could create their own characters? So we created a very, you know, Mark Warshaw, you know, iterated on this idea and created a very a beautiful interface that in, in a very basic way allows fans to pick, you know, allows anybody to pick, you know, to create a character based on their location, based on their power, based on, you know, what type of person they are, what type of thing. And it's kind of like a, a game. And it, it allows them to, to participate creatively in a very kind of casual game style and in an important way as well. Is there a game to it? Uh, yes, uh, Mark, who's a genius, built uh, a way that he's not really a genius, but <laughs> he seems like a genius to me. I don't think he went, he didn't, he's not as smart as Masioka, who is a genius. <laughs> um, uh, he created a way that, that, uh, that the characters will compete and, and a way that, that uh, based on the, the, the you know, number of hits that a certain character type is getting, and, and they'll kind of battle their way all the way to the end. Once so is we, it a fighting game? You fight against other? No, it's just flipping over tiles to select, yeah. you know, to like, select a like character. A game, and, and you can play it very easily. It's like a trading card game. You can play it very easily on your, on your cell phone. After that, we're going to take you know, probably the, you know, the one character that wins, maybe you know, <coughs> more than And this is a mobile thing? Yeah. It's, there's a mobile component to it because Sprint is obviously. But is it also on the web? But it's, I mean, it's also made on the web. How many have you done? I mean, how many have you got it's metrics? The first one we're it's just, just launched. We and, hope it's cool. And, it's, and, we, exactly, and that's so much of it. We hope it's cool. We hope we get it right. And sometimes we Are you live with it, it now? It's live right now, yeah. And how many hits have you got? I mean, Not a clue because we're. They won't tell us. They never tell us anything about the, the hits what? and all that stuff. They won't give, give us that shit. Why would they give us that shit? <laughs> <laughs> then we know how much how much you know money they're making. You want more money. That's it's, weird. It's man. a disaster. Is that true? So yes, and just to be, just to keep going on this crazy great idea is that so these people can you know with their phone can build these characters that can then be in a webisode series, right? And for me, that has to be. We have to find a way to make that canon. You know, we have to find a way That's to it. give that character value, right. so that then that character can jump onto the to the main series, at, or maybe onto Origins, and find a way that there's value to the creation Fantastic. of that character. And um, That's the future. And, uh, that, uh, let me let me tell you what my vision is for the future of entertainment. <laughs> hey, Please. you want it? Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> Cars, when racing was, around the world. Yeah. <laughs> and what was, More what's with that homoerotic? Um, I've seen it. It's the, the, um, the fanfic girl from yesterday. I don't have my glasses on. The, uh, 
when, when I was a, a dungeon master. <laughs> a grand dungeon master. <laughs> and I was playing with, with, you know, five, ten, sometimes fifteen people were sitting around this table. Um, I was creating a world, a universe, in, in which um, when it was done just right and the pizza and the beer was set aside and they were all looking at me and I was looking <laughs> back at them, um, th there was a spark of magic. Um, we were in this world and, um, and I, uh, as a storyteller, was validating and celebrating your participation in this world. I was, I was building something that raised you up in this world and then challenging you so that you can overcome that and again be raised up. That was so intense, that was so passionate those, those nights. I want that for an actual fantasy universe that is implemented across multiple media platforms. I want you to be validated and celebrated for being a part of canon, of universe proper, for, mm -hmm. for in, mm -hmm. in your own small and subtle way, and I don't mean one dude who happens to land in a webisode or, or get a, a cameo in the uh, He's talking in, about the, the future. Show. He's not judging the present. That's party. right. <laughs> no, no, I, I, think, I think that's a step toward it. You, you're, you guys are doing it, uh, and, and God bless. But, but at some point, and this is, these are the tools that, that we're trying to build uh, at, at my place, um, that, that you will eventually become a character in, in that world. Um, and depending on your uh, level of, of participation, your level of loyalty, your level of, of cleverness, um, and how other people who are participating feel about you, uh, you will move closer and closer to the, the center of the action. And, um, and that's, uh, th that's the, the kind of um, uh, fictional world that I think is going to start proliferating in the, in the future. That's awesome. We're talking about a game, right? We are talking about a transmedia experience. Well, no, no, no. A, a universe that is not a game, that is a living, breathing, operating world. Okay, I have to ask you some questions. Right there, but you're going to have, you, you're a game designer, okay? I know you're a game writer. Well, a so, little bit. So you can't have, this is very interesting to yeah. me because I'm working on the same thing, but you have to have rule sets. Okay, and, and, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Enough said. Rule set. This is not fan Don't, fic. I, it's, not, it's not fan fic. No, but it's I, also I not it, virtual it's, reality. It's not, and it's not virtual okay. reality. I just want to make that clear because it, that's it just is, a walking simulator and it's, and it's right. so dependent on difficult community issues you know, no, to no, get going, no. right. No, you're, you're someone who, who lives on Bespin. Yeah, I love it, I love it. No, um, I love it. Who, who can stay there or, or who can gradually work their way to the heart of the empire love it. and meet Luke and, 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 yep. and, and deal with And that's awesome. People. And I, and, you know, and I hope, and, and I, as, as all things do, we know eventually that'll happen. A real challenge of that is something that we experience on a daily basis at Heroes is creative collaboration. It, <laughs> and, you know, something with, with, you know, a Dungeons and Dragons game, it, it, for me, that's, the, the perfect analogy for the way that we, you know, made last se the last season of Heroes. We collaboratively all came into, we, every week we come into a room, we all, using a, a set of rules, build story, we all collaborate on the, the creation of that story, and, and, cer and certainly last season it, it, it was magic. It captured magic. And, and per perhaps when we strayed away from that type of process and, and looked at something that was more uh, structural, and more traditional in, in a TV model, we created something that was more traditional in a TV model. So we've learned tremendous lessons from, from these experiences, yes. but the complexity of getting, of, of working with creative people, collaborating on a narrative, 
is super challenging it with is. 10 people and me acting as dungeon master in the room. <laughs> you just and, have you to know. have a dungeon master. I, I, no, <laughs> and, seriously. And, and he's kind of, and he's right. And, and what the, and what would that look like within, within that space? You know, that's something to think about. It's right. a really right. important process point. Yes. Take me two seconds. <laughs> um, in a film, there's a director, right? And TV, there's the executive producers, the writers. The writers drive TV, the directors drive film. In games, there's this sick egalitarian thing where you sit around and you have a great idea, you have a great idea, I have a great idea, he has a great idea, and you know where we go? His next great idea. And yeah. there's nobody there to totally. say, let's build on that. And it's this weird thing. And so all I'm saying is, is that you need a game master, oh, you sure. need a director, you need a core visionary. I don't care how many guys you have. Right. You need somebody who's going to say, yes, let's do that and let's not do that. Because no matter how many talented people you are, they're going to be going... Like that's that. that's absolutely right, and 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 building on that, there are though lessons from the game industry that we've taken, you know, to use on heroes. I've talked about some of this with somebody this, over the last few days. Is that, you know, that that team approach to creating something, um, uh, the, you know, the the, the uh, a single creative thing. You know, we functioning as a group, we do what I like to liken to rapid prototyping in a game. We work very quickly. We create something that is kind of potentially low res, but it, we. We can get you know a story broken in a couple of days, a script written in a couple of days, because we're all working as a unified team. Sure. And then we look at it and we see what's working, what's not, and that allows us to stay ahead of the production curve and, and iterate on those well, ideas. You also have multiple characters running multiple threads. Huge. So he can write Huge. one thread, I can write a thread, he can write a thread, he can write a thread, go together. My shows were always two guys or one guy, and it's like one guy was in every scene. So it's really that's can't really work that way. Okay. Yep. Questions in the audience, Jason. Um, Jeff, just to, to build on your your vision of the future of us all <laughs> sitting around your your uh, <clears throat> dining room table, um, <laughs> I think that I mean I love that vision. I'm a former D and D player myself, so I appreciate that and I understand what you're getting at. But if we think about, I mean D and D is a micro medium. It's yes. face to face. It is about a small community existing in the same time and place. Yes. And we're talking about transmedia across the world, maybe asynchronous, may, you know, things that are not about these tiny communities. We're, I mean, so where is that? I mean, I think that there's this huge gap there in trying to understand how you could massify that. I model. would call it a design challenge. I wouldn't call it a gap. I mean, because do you play MMOs? Yeah, no, and I, I was thinking about that. I think that MMOs do come close to that to some yeah. degree. But one of the problems with MMOs is unless you play them four to eight to ten hours a day, you're never going to get close to that center. So you can't, you know, the, the question of being able to reach what, you know, what that spark for a wide range of types of engagement and types of content and platforms and time and space yeah. is really, yes, it may, it may be a challenge, but I don't see how to accomplish it. it. It's, it's actually... Um, uh, uh, slightly different. My problem with MMOs is that um, is that you can try real hard, and it will take you hours and days and months to to get anywhere near anything. Sometimes even any kind of validation. There are people who wander around the, the back alleys of those MMOs who people don't even talk to, with the kind of uh, technology that's being developed with mobile and and, and everything. The personalization mechanisms will almost immediately start validating uh, your, your investigation and your that's, participation that's in this world. Um, and I, I'm not necessarily talking about a, a true game experience. I'm talking about an enhanced fan experience. Um, if you want to play the game, 
you'll go into the MMO of that universe's that that iteration. I'm talking about um, uh, be, being able to to dabble and, and participate, and and then the more you do, the more that you can, right. you're threatening to contribute canon, um, and 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 that's that's really it. Uh, so there is a distinction between what I'm talking about and a true kind of gaming. Uh, well, the, there's a neat thing going on. I think you're alluding to it, and it's data mining people, right? I've been working on a, um, I'm consulting on a theme park for Dubai, okay? And well, they got money up the, you know. Yeah. So what it is, and I can't, you know, there's a lot of NDA going on on this, and I can't talk about. Don't it. talk about it, dude. They're from Dubai. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Dubai is cool, all right. Dubai's like Las Vegas, all right. That's true. I work on that stuff too, and Dubai's fine. So um, <laughs> here's the interesting thing. So if you go to, I'm just going to say some high-level things that might inspire some thinking because I can't divulge too much, okay? But if you wear something on your body that holds all the data relating to you and the experience, and it's persistent. Because he used the word persistence, it's one of my favorite words. Games and persistence, I, I love games that have persistence, any kind of persistence. <laughs> so I really want to tell you guys about this. They have some major licenses, and I designed an attraction that is expandable. And this one attraction is expandable. One attraction could be the whole place, but it's basically be a character. And it uses technology, it uses motion capture, it uses false reflective surfaces. Okay, I'm, just, I, I'm not going to go into this too heavily because this is all my design. You're but, right, your toast. But, uh, but it's really cool. And right now there are technology people trying to get the engineering going on this thing. But the basic concept is if you could take a theme park, a physical space, and everybody could be data mined, you could have a sort of live action MMO. Now, I'm not talking about people in costumes and that kind of stuff. I can't talk about it anymore. <laughs> but but I'm really, 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 really excited about this. And I had more fun working on this than maybe anything in 20 years. I went ape shit. I mean, you couldn't get me off the computer. Yeah. All right, to, to take Danny out of a difficult situation, I'll take a question from Michael up there and then one from Mark down here. Uh, I don't know if I can help getting out of a difficult situation. I have a, a kind of a difficult question. I, I'm approaching <laughs> this sort of question between fantasy and actuality. Um, from a perspective of somebody who's been working in mobile and in real spaces, and uh, in, in my productions run against the question of history and actuality, and how do you do history? How do you deal with history? And what I became very interested in are production houses like Participant Productions that did An Inconvenient Truth, but then go on the road and proselytize and really try to build carbon calculators and all these sort of real world impact devices around their media property. and. I've, uh, I'm wondering a bit, because I hear tinged in some of the discussions here, um, uh, especially about the C.S. Lewis properties, is some sort of interest in, in issues and real-world involvement, and that in the mind there's some aspect of fantasy that's an escape from that. And so I'm wondering in this discussion of transmedia, if we can start expanding it towards transmedia, not just across different media platforms, but from fantasy into, into real-world real issues and real-world involvement, um, not just around playing the game, but maybe some of the crises in the world that are going around that, that, that circulate in some of your properties. Listen, uh, coming from my personal background um, and, and uh, overcoming um, a lot of the obstacles I faced in, in order to, God, speak at MIT, which was beyond... <laughs> my imagination. Um, 
I had some hard knocks and learned some lessons. Um, these are uh, messages uh, that, um, that I think about. I think about the kids I left behind, uh, my peers, uh, when, when we were young and even into to teenage years, who didn't make the choices that I made and, um, and wound up in, in dark areas. Um, I, I'm trying to, everything that I do is, is talking back to them and, and reminding me. <laughs> um, so, so there is a, a social message in, in what I do. Um, and, and I look for a, a message in the, in the worlds, in the universes that I create. If there is no message, um, this whole thing is going to fall flat. I don't care how many millions of dollars you, you put in it. And we've seen mega bomb movies where, where the themes and messages were not well, well developed. Um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a requirement. <laughs> For, for there to be um, uh, some kind of message. And that's what Narnia got, and that's what Heroes got. And, and they are resonating with, uh, with society today. And that's what's helping to make them successful. So you, I, I think absolutely um, that, that um, uh, this can even be made more so, uh, more, more powerful, more, more overt, um, uh, but not to the point where it becomes didactic or else you're going to turn people off. So and, it's, it's a line to, to walk. And Tip, you know, Tim Krang, who created Heroes, created from, as I've said, a very pure place. It was a, you know, about trying to, make the, trying to tell a very hopeful story. Uh, and, and with the success of the show and the way he's seen, you know, the way he has seen a fan community build around a, a media property and, and the support and love and, and that, that that community has, has shown for it and, and the power, he really believes that the success of Heroes is based on the fan community that, that, that gathered around the property starting at Comic-Con and built positive buzz around it. He attributes that the success of the, uh, of the launch of the show to that fan community. So he has come up with an you know, incredible concept that you know, he's, he's spoken with about at, at some level. So I'm, my ass is covered. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, that he, he wants to find a way to use Heroes, to use Heroes as a transmedia brand as a way to be more of a positive force for good in the real world, to, to be a way that you can bring community together, you know, start, starting with the fan base of heroes, and, and bringing that community together and finding out what they care about and, and helping them find ways to affect positive social change in the world in, in, the, in the way that you know, very forward-thinking companies like Participant ha, ha, have shown to be positive and effective and doable. Um, and it's something that you know, Tim and I have been working on, and we've been talking to a lot of really exciting people about, about these kinds of things, some of them from MIT, some of them, you know, in the Silicon Valley, and everybody's really excited about this, and we're trying to find a way to use, to use entertainment and to use a very successful pop culture brand a, a, as a way to, not didactically, which is the huge challenge about it, to, to, to show people how, how they can affect change and how they can be positive and and make change in the world, and potentially, I, I don't want to. I'm just going to use the word. We, we want to help people understand the power of things like philanthropy, the power of, of being socially aware, the power that an individual can, even an individual can have, or a group can 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 have when they come together. And there's tremendous. Um, I use that. I use too many big hyperbole words, don't I? <laughs> there's there's fantastic things on the net that that, uh, <laughs> that uh, are very exciting. There's an, a campaign called Invisible Children that I don't know if you guys are aware. Of, and I would I would consider Invisible Children a trans transmedia property, I think. And, and it's based around uh, 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 grassroots high school fundraising for schools in Ethiopia. 
fi finding ways that kids around America can come to, uh, around the world can come together, can find each other, can work to help and affect a, you know, a very real world uh, uh, situation. Um, and I encourage everyone to check it out. The, their, their interfaces are elegant. The way they use the tools of you know, what I call Web 2.0, the, the way that they use podcasting and, and they use kind of real time uh, aggregation of metrics or something, which might not be the right term, is it, it, something that, that everybody here should check out. And, and it's, it's a, you know, Th that I think is a very ex ex exciting uh, thing to be thing to be doing. And I, I, that's what I love about working at Walden Media and what I'm doing now. With almost every one of our films, we try to find some social cause to get behind. We have a film that's opening this weekend, Miss Megorian's Wonder Emporium. Mm -hmm. We set a goal, partnering with Toys for Tots, to raise twelve thousand pounds of toys in one week in ten different cities, and Guinness was going to certify it. That is the record. We ended up raising twenty-eight thousand pounds. And so that was fantastic. And whether people knew they were, uh, it was a, for marketing a movie, right. or it didn't matter because at the right. end of the day, we raised a lot of toys for kids. And the, tr the trick yeah. is to find things that are thematically connected to what you're doing. We were, uh, Tim and I were put together with Nicholas Negroponte, who obviously um, you guys all know. You guys all know about One Laptop. You know, we met with Nicholas, we chatted about it, and, and, it, and One Laptop is very thematically tied into Heroes. It's, about, it's, a way of, it's a way of empowerment. It's a way that individuals can connect around the world and could, could you know, change their individual lives and could, can work together. So Heroes is attached to one laptop. And, and, and you know, Masi Oka, who's one of the stars of our show, is a spokesperson now for one laptop. Um, and and it's, it's thematically on our brand. And, and, uh, and, and I hope that we're going to work together very well. Mark, down here. Hi, Mark Davis, Yahoo. What a thrilling panel. Um, so I want to kind of challenge you guys to really think about what it would mean to have fans participate in and extend the, the universes and worlds you're making. When I grew up in LA, I wanted to be on the bridge of the Enterprise with Kirk, dancing with Bugs Bunny, landing on the moon with Neil Armstrong. So 10 years ago, we actually built technologies where we could automatically put people into videos at interval research. And, and on the web, if you look, there's a video of me in the T, the, uh, as a T-1000 in Cameron's trailer, <laughs> which was automatically made. That was possible because we basically rotoscoped all the footage and basically broke it into elements. So as creatives, are you going to be willing to open up your content, to take all the characters on Heroes green, and do 50 clips each that are green screened, shoot the backgrounds, and put them out on the web so that your fans can extend the narrative universe? or for Narnia. So seriously, because now we're finally at the point, and even like Yahoo, we have web-based editors that are free. Right. Anyone in the world can go to Jump Cut and make a movie today. Right, so the ability to take it and to really be willing to allow fan participation directly Dude, in the creation We're not of the gonna need to do any of that because within a year or so, they're gonna be able to do that themselves. They're the gonna be able to, to rip apart every episode of Heroes and stick themselves in there and do whatever they want. The, no. Look at those Star Wars well, shorts. Well, yeah, but, but yeah. seriously though, <laughs> the, the work of actually doing good green screens and layering is, is not trivial. And, and I would just, just to jump in, you know, I would say, I would say, <laughs> I was thinking about what I would say. First, I'll say no, <laughs> that we're not going to give you all our core characters. But we're absolutely going to create new characters, maybe some of our core characters, and let you fuck with them, and let you do whatever you want to do with them, and, 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 and have fun with them, and explore the space, and be creative, creative within that space. But there is absolutely a need, especially with a mass market broad, you know, broad, 
broadband, broad property like heroes to, to protect the core base. Because the base is, you know, the, it, it is the mass audience that's watching that show on a weekly basis. And we also, we want to protect Canon for everybody. We want to make sure that, that, that the brand can, can remain consistent for that, that broad experience and for the fan experience. And we all, but we do want to acknowledge the fans and people who want to exploit the property in new and exciting ways. So personally, yes, it, you know, is, is where, where we're going to be it's going. It's interesting. I, I have uh, mm -hmm. friends at a company called Star Farm Productions based out of Chicago, and they have a property called Edgar and Ellen, which was launched in books. They had a huge promotion at Target around Halloween, and they just launched an animated series on Nicktoons, and I think two minutes of every episode is fan-generated content. Where through their website they have kids writing in saying we would like to see this, and they they take that well, and adapt that right into the it show. Really, it really, it really depends on who it's for. I think so. It's like I developed a, a project. Um, it, it went sideways and became something else at EA. But it, it was originally going to be a TV series where you have your two main characters. It was a spy thing. You had two main characters, and then the B characters were going to run the interactive show, so to speak. That people were going to be able to, it's kind of what you're saying. Yep. People were able to interact with it, but I was going to be able to use production dollars, just keep splitting those guys off and shooting all this stuff in the sets and just yep. farming all this stuff oh, out right. and having like two writers on that who are working on those character side stuff. Now, when you're talking about is now you let people, the users, and you know, I've done a lot of that in the game stuff, create. Mm -hmm. And I think that's cool, but it's it, as long as it's unofficial. You know what I mean? It's like that's the fan base stuff, so that the official stuff always has the Hologram seal on it that comes from his, it, it, that comes from the core of the show that's fully approved. Absolutely. But you open all that up for people to play and run and trade. But I don't have to watch that if I don't want, right? And I don't have to have that interrupt my show. My I'm keep using his show as an example because I'm watching it right now and I love it. But I don't have to um, yes. have it interrupt that. But if I want more, I can go fool around. And there's no I, I don't blame him for the goofy. You know the goofy, lousy hero thing that somebody did, or, or you know what I mean. I don't blame him. He's not responsible. I think as long as there's the official stuff and it's really clearly marked, it's it's all really great. And in convergence culture, you know, Harry, uh, Henry talks a lot about layers and you know different like fan experiences, and that's something to really keep in mind is because the, yeah. the audience is massive, and then it's not just the fans who want to generate you know fan content as we you know. We're talking about in the in the conversation yesterday about fan fiction. Fan fiction was talked about a lot. They're very different and specific niches within fan fiction. So there are different ways that, that people want to experiment with the characters. So there could absolutely we could create spaces where people could officially, you know, interact with you know our characters, and then then certainly there would be you know unofficial ways that other people would go and, and exploit them. And it's just a matter of trying to you know come up with as many exciting, creative, authentic ways to give your audience. The opportunity to do whatever they they want to do, and yet maintain integrity to your to to what your brand There's is. There's going to need to be some legal pioneering to to make sure that that's okay, because you know these corporations are very nervous about their IP and and, and so forth. But I, I think it, it is going to happen because it'll happen either way, right? Whether they control it or not, right. it'll happen. And, and, it's, and it's, it's happening with Mishima. People sure, making Mishima. movies out of yeah. Uh, Halo, yeah. A thing that we just we dealt with on on heroes and, and Mark will correct me if I get any of this wrong is I was seeing the stuff on YouTube that were those you know vids or whatever that were you know where people were were, were remixing bits of the show to, to music and I was like to to whatever they wanted and they had a homoerotic relationship between a couple of the characters who may even have been related which was you know their choice and they were doing this amazing creative thing so I said well fuck, I want it. let's encourage that and let's acknowledge that and let's you know. 
let's maybe do a, you know, my version of that was let's do a contest. We'll do something for Comic-Con. We'll get all these people just to submit this stuff and, and we'll, take, we'll take a look at it and, you know, we'll, we'll expose it and put it out there. Well, maybe that was, a, you know, based on yesterday's conversation, maybe that was not a good idea to do a contest. But beyond that, <laughs> legally, you know, it was, then it became, well, if you want to do something like that, we need to be able to control that remixing. Is that correct, Mark? Yeah, we had to build. We had to build an like you know a, an editor on our website. We had to give them specific clips that we had cleared. Had that, to create a rule set. Basically. To create a rule set that they could play with, and you know it was maybe not as successful as it would have been if we had just said to fans, "If you're making cool shit, send it to us." But because of the legal constraints of uh, of the use of clips from the show, uh, we were locked into into that model. Are you seeing? Uh Something that I've started to see is where the studios are creating what appears to be user-generated. Oh well, EA's been doing that. Yeah. On the game stuff on YouTube, that stuff they post. To try to make yeah. it seem like there is a sort of a viral outcome. Yeah, that's of the sick. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're caught. You're dead. That's we haven't done. We did some amazing viral videos for Heroes in, at the launch, and um, that that we worked on with some incredibly creative people at NBC that were. You know, kind of that were handy cam style images of some of our characters. You know, kind of learning about their powers. There's an amazing thing that we shot about Claire, the cheerleader, and it was a kind of handy cam jackass style video that was shot by her best friend. And the, her best friend's talking to Claire about you know her powers, and then he gets in a car and he sets the video camera on the hood, on inside the car in the dash, and he drives straight at her and he hits her. And she goes <laughs> flying over the car and he gets out and he checks her and her legs all bent. And, and and it was very kind of seamless and it and it was very you know real okay, yeah. and uh, and it was too real we couldn't put it out there yep. because because you know people looked at it and they said that's terrible it's imitatable people start to drive into each other with their cars and <laughs> what did those cost uh, they cost uh, a, a lot of money a significant amount of money and, and and that's the thing is you'll find people within NBC and there's so many different layers of it. I think it was NBC agency maybe or, or one of the different NBC departments who were very excited about creating that type of content mm -hmm. and were willing to put resources behind it and willing to, to do it and they made these incredible things and then took it up the food chain to the very the highest levels of the company and they look who looked at it and said no fucking way in hell are we putting that out there are you crazy? All right, so we're down to the last couple of minutes, and I wanted to combine two of the highest-ranking questions up on the board uh, into one final question. And the first one at the top of the board is, what will it take to move the industry past the notion that transmedia is still essentially a clever way to advertise products or content and toward treating transmedia content as its own viable product? And a little under that is, what are your predictions for the kinds of transmedia experiences we're going to see in the next few years? That gives me 18 points, the highest we've gotten so far. Wow. <laughs> uh, let me ask the second part of that, because there, there was one property I wanted to bring up here, because I'm working there now, and everybody's talking <laughs> about sci-fi and fantasy, and High School Musical mm -hmm. is a ridiculous transmedia property. I mean, and it's not swords, and it's not guns, and it's not... It's not what traditional geeked out stuff. Maybe it's a different geek. You know, I don't know. Maybe it's the 10 to 14-year-old girls. But it's so big and so pervasive and so much stuff. I just had to put that one out there because all we've been talking about is the stuff that we all have been participating in. Right. And there you've got one that the content is completely different. But, it's, it's a, but in the same way, it's a genre and it has its audience that's as passionate as the hero's audience is. 
and it's made an insane amount of money, and it's also defining the channel now. Absolutely, and that you know it's something that the that people was from advertising we're talking about as well is that almost anything can have a community, can build a loyal community around it, and it's finding ways to give that community terrific ways and exciting and authentic ways to to play with it and, and exploit it and experience it. That's right. Uh, it, it certainly um, alludes to the future, High School Musical, because. Um, uh, you know, with, with anything new, it always starts with uh, sex and violence, and then it evolves into a, a more mass culture uh, uh, thing, and, and that's what you're going to see with the, the transmedia experience. It's, it started with, um, with the, Na the Matrix and, and right. Blair Witch Project and, and so forth um, in its contemporary uh, version, um, and then uh, is evolving into these, uh, these things that would appeal to... Uh, to young women and, and so forth, and that's uh, that's I think the uh, the way it's going to continue going. But there has to be um, uh, things that exemplify it and that are showing the the studios and the the corporations that um, that it's actually generating cash revenue. The other piece to the other part of the question about when will it become like an art form and not just an advertisement or a promotional thing? My guess, and this is based on my experience with video games in Hollywood is that when the executives, when some executives enjoy transmedia the way some of us do, right. then they'll get it. Otherwise, until then, it's, a, it's, a, it's an advertising promotional deal. Until they yeah. have the user experience of how cool it is, right. and somebody does, and then really sells I had the same thing with video games in Hollywood. It's, it's big disconnect, and then, they're start, then they, the executives are always really young, right? So now the executives at the CE level, or maybe five years ago, they were gamers, right? And now... Five years later, they're moving up a little bit higher, and we can start talking about, because I'm, we haven't talked about games much here, but, but I think that games are a, a really, really important transmedia piece. I mean, they're my, the most important part for me and for my corner of the world, because that's you in the movie. And my whole goal in my career is to get you in the movie somehow. I mean, that's been my goal since I was a child, mm -hmm. and that's, that's why I work in games. I, look, I told Henry earlier, I'm starting to look at the linear stuff as a support system is not the lead system anymore. It's going, looking to the future. Um, because as I was saying, you can get a lot of emotion stuff out of film. But, but I really think it's all about, people have to understand it from a, from a user point of view. Not from a, oh, look at the revenue, or oh, isn't that sexy, or whatever it is. They have to really understand it, because everything I do, everything I do is from a user point of view. I make games because I love to play games. I mean, we, he must have said ten times he played with Star Wars toys when he was a kid. You know, I love Star Wars toys. You know, I mean, it's the it's best. and and I'm sure that he and I would love to write episodes of that new Star Wars show. But, but I'm not invited, and maybe you're not either. But uh, you might be. I was just at Skywalker Ranch, and it was very cool. And I got to go into the archive and see all this. That stuff. is so neat. Whoa. That is so. I'll that show you so pictures. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll freak out. But uh, another thing that I think was a, I think I remember being as part of that question was you know we've been talking about transmedia as coming from a very kind of corporate, you know, media-based, you know, place. You know, for me, the transmedia stuff that I played with and experimented with was, was, was when I was at Alias, and I took the tools that were available to, be, to me on the web, and I made transmedia stuff <laughs> on the web myself. And, and I would argue that, that more than many, you know, mediums, you know, games, cinema, the, the tools that are available to people to create in, in their homes and kids and you know individuals who are not part of a corporate entertainment structure to create a transmedia story it, are, are all there out for you to be exploited and I, you know 
my understanding of it is it's the, uh, the some of the people who were involved in the you know the I Love Bees games and those types of types of ARGs have have gone on to create you know their own their own ARGs with args or within the community, um, and, and I think that that that's one of the places where we're going to see amazing new creative you know things. There's a corporate slightly version of that. This guy. Uh, and some of you guys probably know more about it. The guy who created Afterworld, I think. Afterworld, you should. Yeah, this guy who you know created a, a a property for himself that you know he got people that he knew to use CG and and animate you know a, a narrative story, and he kind of built it online to go onto YouTube, and and he kind of he did it, you know, himself and with people that he knew and money that he could could generate, and and it was then purchased by a media company, but. The Garage Games version of transmedia storytelling and the fanfic version of transmedia storytelling, you know, is going to be incredible, and that's going to, you know, inspire me to go do other new cool things, and that's going to help get this whole medium, you know, taken more seriously and shown that how powerful it can be, and and, and I think that that's an opportunity. Do that you people have? Take and this is this of. was really important to me back in the day on the internet. The other thing we haven't talked about is that all of this fan-generated stuff is a form of feedback. It's a form of a feedback loop. And in the film business, like, you know, I started in theater when I was in college, you know, and oh, the audience, they clap and everything, and they can see afterward and say, that was great, I really love that. Well, you're out there making these TV shows, and you're just buried 14 hours a day. You don't know what you're doing. You True. Maybe half the time, you don't even see dailies. I mean, you're just going like a maniac. And when I would get, in the, I'd go to the con, or I'd get, when I got with the fans of my show, they could see the forest through the trees. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like I'm making it for them yep. and me. You know, I'm not really making it for that creative, that the current exec at the network, because they who gives all the notes. I'm really making it. so in the last year and a half of the Sentinel, we were absolutely influenced by the fans mm -hmm. and by their desire for more of the mythology episodes, were like the core things that like the more of the serialized stuff, more relationship stuff between the it was fantastic because as a creator. Where do you get your feedback? Well, you get these crappy focus group marketing things. Wouldn't you rather get it direct? You know, you can filter it yourself if you have a brain. It, it's you a can really do cool that thing. With TV, certainly, and feature. But you're TV spending also so much money, you you can't really change it. And you're the same with TV. No, 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 no. TV, you're behind the curtain as well. For your sequel, you can worry about it for your sequel. That's the thing. And for season, you know, for your next season, you can absolutely incorporate it. And and you know. We're getting fan, you know, we're getting responses right now. Or we had been about, you know, these new characters that we created on the show, and people didn't like them. It's like, well, too bad. We, you know, we got ten more episodes of, the, of those guys, so we can't, we can't alter it. We, we can't change it. So uh, you're that far ahead, dude. Come on. <laughs> but you shut down, didn't you? Uh, there, yeah. <laughs> just, we, no, we did. And, but, no one's right. but that's, but that's, you know, that's a whole other conversation. It's yeah. incredibly important to stay very far ahead on a serialized show because the keep to keep the narrative line and to keep the, oh, yeah? the feed the production pipeline. But uh, <laughs> I've never done serialized. Dealing with, uh, but dealing with fan response and, and getting their input is incredibly valuable. And, and you know, that's like for me coming here and talking to people who actually have the time to think about. The stuff that I do and talk to me about it is so helpful in shaping the way I approach it and, and talking to the people with the critical, you know, or uh, I don't know if it's a critical studies. It, I'm sorry, it's media studies people as well as fans that I'm meeting here and, and talking to incredibly thoughtful people. There's a young woman I was speaking with yesterday who was incredibly insightful about about certain things and and taking that input uh, and hopefully you know helping it alter our content in the future. Right. It's I, I think the fan interaction <coughs> clearly on Narnia. Their uh, guy set up a site called narniafans.com. He let it had a blog. 
Yeah, it, it's you know, he wasn't he wasn't posting anything on there that Disney or Walden didn't say you could post it. It was mostly a blog and, and picking up things that were already out on the web. They had a much higher uh, unique user rate right. and hits than the official website, official right. website right. because there was that two-way interaction with people talking to the other. Actually, on, on uh, Walden's website, we're probably one of the few production companies that we also have uh, chat rooms on our site. And we had a film that came out about a month ago, and the fans were not happy, and they were skewering what us was on it? our own website. Which one? The Seeker. Seeker. Based on The Darkest Rising by Susan Cooper. And we let them complain. Yeah. If you, at that point, once it's up there, you can't take it down. That, and that becomes was a, a news story if you do that. Totally. And that was a lesson that, you know, we, in, in terms of building those spaces for those fans, that we as, you yeah. know, fans creating these shows think that that's very important. And you could, you know, for me, kind of trace it back to Buffy and Joss Whedon's interaction with his fan community and how valuable that was. And when we launched Lost, David Fury, who had worked with Joss and who was a part of, uh, who had worked with Joss and was a part of Lost, had relations within that fan community. So we created a website using some of the Buffy people called the Fuselage that, that was an official place, official unofficial place. ABC had no money in that. In that. You know, I think JJ paid for it out of his, his own pocket in the beginning. And it was a way to give fans a place to interact directly with the creators of the show so that, that people could go, they could go online and talk to each other. And, and, and we did the same thing uh, on Heroes with this thing called Ninth Wonders that we launched in a, in a way that, that to try and build a space where the fans that wanted to talk about it could and could, you know, Hopefully, have a have a channel. So, who for us reads today. it and filters it and sends the highlights to your desk? Uh, <laughs> nobody, and that's one of the you know massive disconnects, and that's one of the challenges. Is, mm -hmm. is it used to if you were, if we were doing it on our own, you know, in in, the, in a way that the fuselage was done, it would be much easier. But now that we're in a space where you know an entity like NBC or AB, or whoever, they need to have control of that space. You know, they they you know. They need to control who works there, who gets paid there, who moderates those forums, all those types of things. So, you know, potentially in the future, if I ever created my own property, I might create my own space that nobody else owned so that I could have a direct relationship with the, the fans. Good, good. Uh, to, to get back to answer the, the original question, um, uh, right now uh, uh, I am paid, my paycheck comes from the marketing division of, of these companies. Um, what we're pushing our representation to go for and, and what we're trying to do ourselves a little bit is to move that uh, because uh, transmedia storytelling is, is, uh, is production, is development, is, is a part of, of the budget that, that, you, right, that you strike up. To, uh, to it can be extended into consumer exactly. products. Exactly, right. Yep. But it, is, it, it, it will be an art form and it is going to be uh, something that, that emerges uh, from visionaries and, and therefore it, it is not uh, uh, going to be paid for with marketing dollars. And, and um, I'm a little impatient <laughs> because I really want to jump that fence, but that's what, um, what has to happen next. And, and that, that's such a great point and it's been something that has been challenging for us ex uh, exploiting heroes because as a Star Wars fan, I, I love all that other stuff. I want my action figures, I want mm -hmm. my shirts, I want all that stuff and I want it to be good and I want it to be cool uh, and I want it to extend the story. So. You know, one version, you know, so we met with someone in consumer products who wanted to make us, you know, a sword, a replica hero sword. Okay, that's cool. So what can we do with that that's special? We can take the box for that and do something that's very artful and maybe do a special comic book that's on the back of the box mm. that will be 
canon. And we'll show you how you know characters found the sword and give you a history of the sword. So it adds value to that That's consumer great. product sure. in, mm -hmm. through, through storytelling. Exactly. And that is incredibly challenging to do in the current landscape of these companies. You, you know, without one specific person or department who's filtering all these types of things, it's done very piecemeal and, and, and through force of will and personality and those, those types of things. Absolutely. We are, um, we're creating a, a Pirates of the Caribbean uh, a prequel for DXD, the Disney mm -hmm. Extreme Digital Portal. And, um, and we, we used the, uh, the channels uh, that allowed for us to develop the mythology and so forth to, to make our little story canon. It is it a video do, or is it interactive? It, it's going it? to be an interactive story. It's directed at, at tweens. Is it you Young know? Jack Sparrow stuff? And, uh, and Jack is in there, but uh -huh. what I was interested in were these, uh, these other pirate lords who right. are actually kind of ethnic right. And, right. and interesting and international and what's their story and so forth. So it, it, Jack's in there, but he's not the main deal. That's brilliant. Um, and um, and hopefully that will help open up. So there's going to be that, CG that animated whole, videos. Is that what it's, they are? It's uh, it's going to be animated. Um, the exact nature oh, okay, of okay. it, you know. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, budget. <laughs> but it's it's going to be cool. Okay, good. So um, what, we talked a little bit about games as part of a transmedia system. Comics are also becoming increasingly central well, to this. Absolutely. So and several of you have had involvement with comics. So I'm just wondering if you could talk about what comics add to the mix of transmedia at the present time. Well, it's weird that comics, there's a company, and I just had a meeting with them the other day, called um, Devil's Do. Have sure. you met with these I guys? Okay. So their business model is, it's about building intellectual properties. That's all it is. So, so, so you write for free, the guy draws for free, you own, I don't know, 88% of the book, and you can then market it. Now, the, the weird thing, and I'm, I'm, I'm approaching the comic book question because comic books to movies is like, it's so it's stupid. Okay, I love <laughs> comics. I love movies. I love comic book movies. I've written them. Um, the obsession over it is stupid. It's to the point now where get it in a graphic novel form, yeah. and they'll like it better. Right, right. Yep. It's, I mean, it's, it's like just that. A, a it's, trend. It's hot right now. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's but it's it's really hard now. Using the comic book as an extended as an extension of the fiction <coughs> is important to me. The problem is. I've got, if it's a video game and a movie, I've got, you know, 10 million people on the movie, and I've got, I've sold 2 million units of the game, and I'm going to sell 30,000 comic books, right? So how much penetration are you really getting? That's why I think comic books work better in the opposite way, to seed the hardcore, build the properties from comics out. Now, do I, I have this property I'm working on now, and absolutely I'm doing the comic, because I'm a comic writer, and I want the graphic novel that extends the fiction in that direction on this on this property where mm -hmm. I, that I built a world for. But I really think that comics are a great way to build properties up, but the extension, because of the numbers, is the, is the reason I say that. But what you're, you, you might not be aware of is the, uh, the digital component to that. And it, right. it's comics in the form where you buy it at your local comics shop. That market is absolutely... It's tiny. Tiny. Infinitesimal. Beyond tiny. You mm -hmm. can't even believe how small that market is. You know, that DC and Marvel, those worlds that they operate in, and, and the, they, those companies very much are in the business of servicing their base and also finding ways to build intellectual property out, yeah. out of their base. But what we found on Heroes when we created the online comics that, that were the idea of Aaron Colite and Joe Pekaski, who were you know, big comic book fans, who you know, are, I couldn't overstate their value to the Heroes property, these guys. Um, and, and they you know, said, let's do this online comic. We've created these online comics that are five pages, essentially. 
and they come after every episode, and they're done professionally by you know uh, artists within the comic book community, and, and they're done by writers on, on, on our staff, and they give you backstory, future story, original story, all tied into the, to the hero's mythology. Those comics are incredibly successful to the point where, you know, again, Mark will give me the actual numbers, whatever he's got, but it, it's arguably the most successful comic book in the world. You know, we'll, we'll have like 500,000 um, downloads of a PDF, maybe a million page views uh, uh, of some of these. What, am I getting close? I remember the post, but if you took all these, the downloads that we have, and that's just the downloads, not the page views, the downloads that people could go send around the world, and you add up four issues of that and put it up against numbers of the best-selling comics in the world, we'd be, uh, in America, we'd be one or two. So then you take the pages on top of that. Right. And it's really And what uh, I think Mauricio was talking about in, in the way that he was exposed to the show through the comic books, is that correct, in, in Brazil? That, that you, we started, that, it started on the comic books, on the PDF. Nobody knew it. It came from broadcast right. show. And then the audience reached it me later, like yeah. six so, months later. They've been incredibly important to us, and obviously it could, could be a unique experience based on that Heroes is a very comic book show, but that type of, of you know, graphic storytelling, I think, you know, reaches a lot of people, and it's just finding about ways to get to them, and, and the opportunities for that kind of thing on the, on the net are, are just beginning. Oh, I think Marvel is very soon going to be launching a, a, an online subscription-based comic yeah, yeah. service. Um, by the way, um, uh, from a marketing standpoint, um, these are the, the Fortune 500 companies that are not necessarily entertainment companies because of the, um, the, the, the new uh, legitimacy of uh, comics, manga, graphic novels. Uh, they're looking into uh, uh, producing uh, comic books uh, uh, that somehow tie into their product and, and so forth or allow them to advertise the, their product in some way. And then they're leveraging them through their own distribution systems. If you're a, uh, a, a giant soft drink company and you want the world to see this comic book, everyone on the planet can see this, this comic book in one form or another. Maybe you have to miniaturize the right. thing. It's what we did with Hot Wheels and, and so forth, but it does uh, get out there and it is a, a medium uh, that's really handy because as you know, they're, a, they're, they're relatively a snap to, to create. We can generate a comic book in, in, uh, in roughly 30 days at, at Starlight. And, um, and you're getting out there, and they serve to do all kinds of things, bridge uh, story arcs, you've used them that way, and um, uh, uh, expand the universe, uh, emphasize secondary characters, um, point the way toward, toward the next arc, and, and so forth. So these are all things that are, that are happening that I think you're going to actually see more of yeah. because they, they effectively uh, function as a kind of vanguard. You get the comic book series out first, even if you're at It's the, really, at the really, like really, that. really property dependent, though. I mean, yes, we've got to acknowledge that. I mean, it's yeah. a comic book show. I mean, it's, 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 it's it is, a, but then, you, then, you know, really forward looking, you know, you think about manga and all the different types of manga that true. people There's are a lot of freaking genres. obsessed with. There's so many different genres it's of manga. Because the stories are really trippy and they're really different for a western audience. I mean, I just do a lot of this in my classes with the students on sure. the manga. Go ahead. Uh, but uh, but I th there is, manga is incredibly popular in the states now as well, yeah. I think. Mm -hmm. So that there are western audiences that are are loving the stories that they're finding in manga that are, you know, not strictly superhero stories that, you right. know, can be all different types of stories and that just goes to the power of comics as an art form. And I think as soon as we start seeing more of these online comics, it's just going to blow up because 
as the tools of you know transmedia, I think are you know can be available to almost anybody. The tools of making online comics, I think, are are very readily available, and, and that as right. a as a, a new entertainment well, format. Well, people can. Or, do, it's I, just this is the first thing the, I'm going to disagree with you on all of this. <laughs> and I have this feeling that people that the masses it, call me wrong don't want to read because it's more effort than all of the other stuff that's just they push a button, it's instant this, instant that, I click between this and this and that. Now that's why I started to say it's a comic book property, meaning that it's organic. I mean, as soon as it was at the first or second episode, it was like Watchmen. I mean, he had the book on the newsstand. I mean, it was like awesome and it was a, it's organic to the property. Would people be reading that comic book en masse like this if you didn't have a show? No, you'd be in the same boat as everybody else with their original comics, I, I, I right? I agree, and, and we do lots of studies on literacy, and it drops every year. People are reading less and less and less. So, there so now, now go the other way. I, I'm just going to say that there are ways that... And you know how long Harry Potter was? Yeah, and, and, I, I, but, and, it was, and it was and it was no comic book for that one, you know. And it got progressively longer. And so I mean, I I think it's I think it's I know I'm completely butting in, but I've got the mic. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I I think it's too easy to say that there's so much other stuff, so people aren't reading. I mean, people are reading everywhere, and more and more. I mean, the fact that we have all these other options hasn't killed off reading intrinsically. And, and comics are great for reluctant readers. They're, they're kind right. of a gateway drug. Like executives. That was my whole point <laughs> yeah. about yeah. the... And, <laughs> and just in, in terms of the tools that are available, there are different versions of comics that you can create. It's not, true. Absolutely. it's not just that comic books are the standard thing that you used to read. There are ways that you can very creatively use, use flash animation and, and all the tools of, of telling a story it, it, with your computer, you can tell a comic book story that incorporates text into it in a creative way, so it feels more like entertainment. There have been some very innovative, you know, successful versions of that. I think, you know, the the one version that I love is there, there's a video game called Metal Gear Solid, and 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 someone made a, mm -hmm. um, a, a an animated comic of that that was emotional, effective, and you could follow it, and and you almost didn't have to read everything because it it, it kind of used motion and and. There's just different layers of comic entertainment that you can... That's an interesting one that he brought up, that Metal Gear thing. Because that was a combination of animation. It was on the PSP, right. wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. And it was, it was a combination of that. That was, that was pretty interesting. But there, this is a good transmedia piece, too, because you have a property that people love, Metal Gear. I'm not even going to comment, but they love it. <laughs> and, and, now, and so they love the brand. They love Snake, Solid Snake, every snake. And they want more. And they want more. And so now they did a linear thing on a game. And that's pretty wild. That's saying that, now that game is really fiction heavy. Really fiction heavy. I mean, it's got long cutscenes in there that you have to sit through. Uh, but when you have a brand, this is sort of the point, right? When you have a brand that's popular, like his, or some of the stuff he's working on, um, then you have the, the power of the IP, meaning people love it, to get them to care about other delivery systems for it. But you I could think. but certainly and I'm probably taking going off point on this you could you know someone could create using uh, tools and online and their own skill an online comic that could be incredibly successful oh, yeah. and then and grow into it could into, be, it could be really um, yes. It could but, also have animation and all those things we're yeah. talking about. And yeah. there could be versions of it where you clicked a button and it was animated and you did or you didn't do that and you read it normally and we've been experimenting with that Then kind we of thing have to go I have to go to the last my last the last thing I'll say is you give all the tools to everybody, and the truth is, and I really think this is kind of true, is that there's only a percentage of the people that are going to make great stuff, right? And there's a reason that, and I, I don't know why, but that we have the privilege of writing this stuff. We're in the right place at the right time, and we kind of know how to do it. 
And then, so you look at YouTube, and it's like, how many of them are good? What's the percentage of good? And all I'm saying is that, you know, there's how many good movies are there a year? Two? Three, maybe? <laughs> so it's going to be like that with everything. But I really look forward to the user-created stuff, and it's happened before, yeah. where it gets bigger than any, I mean, and then somebody buys it, yeah. you know, and it started as a user thing and somebody buys it. But talent is always an important part of it. Okay, on that note, let me thank the panelists. We have plenty of talent. Funny, I'm still trying to find. Um, just one, one, one last really quick thing. Okay. Listen, um, uh, I, I want to address some of the, the, the people out there, uh, particularly the students. Um, the, uh, you, you guys are, are the next you know, the next wave. You're listening to this and you're going to implement this and I think that that's vital. And the, the one thing you have to keep thinking about because I've seen this with you uh, uh, egghead types. Um, you, you're, you're inside and you're building your structures and, and creating your universes and building your engines and so forth and, and then when you get out, um, I, I don't want you to become a cog in, in this uh, giant machine. You, you need to have that message within you uh, that is going to propel you to help us make the changes yeah. that we're talking about. And, um, and to do that, you need to be able to communicate to people, uh, people like us, people who, are, who are, uh, uh, have a little more experience in the industry, uh, so that we could help you uh, get in here because you have this enormous talent and this uh, enormous uh, passion and, and will. Uh, so to that end, and I, um, I just want to, I do this as a policy, Jeff at StarlightRunner.com, I'm your first uh, contact. <laughs> Jeff at StarlightRunner.com, uh, now we're networking. All right? And, and, and I just want to say, and I'll be your second, oh. and you can find me on Facebook. And, and I think that it's incredibly important that there's a dialogue and we share information, and that's why this conference that you guys have put together couldn't be more critical and couldn't be at a more critical time. So yes. I applaud it's, Henry and MIT and everyone at CMS time. for putting this thing together. Thank you. Well, thanks for everyone for coming. I wanted to bring up Josh Green, who is, along with Sam Ford, are the people who really made this event possible. Sure, where Sam, where Sam is? I think he's, I think he's outside. Um, I slotted in 15 minutes for me to say, oh, Henry's going to fall over. <laughs> for, for me to say some closing remarks, but I'm not going to. Uh, instead, right? <laughs> Enough of you. <laughs> instead, I would like to use this this opportunity to read out a very long list of names, and this is the credits that you have to sit through because the bloopers reel comes afterwards. <laughs> um, so, first of all, I, I would like to thank everyone uh, who sat on a panel um, and who sat through some very long sessions and some harrowing discussions. Um, this is a conference that I mean, all conferences rely on speakers, but this is a conference that relies on speakers speaking to each other. Um, and so, I would like for a round of applause again for everybody. Be they here or not. I'd like to thank uh, the AV crew who made the lights go up and down. They did a fantastic job. And the guys from media production who ran the auto cameras. It's the closest thing we have to a robot and it's awesome. Um, and so uh, we'll get podcasts up on the website soon. I would also like to thank the diligent people who live blogged it because that was a task and you did a fantastic yeah. job. I would like to thank in no particular order Josh and Deb and Ernest and Milo and Lan and Laura and Kevin and Lana and Colleen and Yaroslav and Renka and Derek and Mandy and Peter and Huma. 
all of whom pitched in for nothing um, and did some work for us to make this thing happen. I'd like to thank Ivan, who threw in at the last minute to live blog yesterday. I'd like to thank Derek again, who also did some other things. I'd also like to thank uh, Lauren and Eleanor and Anna and Chow Chang, who are the C3 team, who were incredible support. Drew and Dan for making the board thing happen. And thank you for everyone who used that. That worked very well. And Sam Ford, thank you, because he's the man who probably did most of everything. And I just said yes. Just wanted to say, uh, with all the interesting folks who came here, uh, I hope that the next time we speak isn't at Futures of Entertainment next year. Uh, feel free to be in touch, and hopefully we can keep these conversations going. Okay. One more thing before you leave. Can you all please look around you on the floor and collect any <laughs> rubbish? And please take it outside and put it into the bins. Okay. Thank you.